Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show on the SOT Radio Network, where we expose the lies and emphasize the truth about health in our modern world. Good morning, everybody. Today is July the 10th, 2015. I'm your host, Tiffany, and joining me in our virtual studio from all over the world are our regular co-hosts, Jonathan and Doug. And we have two guest co-hosts today, Peter and Tom. Say hello, guys. Hi, everyone. Hello. And we have a very special guest in our virtual studio today. His name is Dr. Andrew Rostenberg. He's going to help us navigate the topic of the MTHFR gene and methylation. But first, a bit about Dr. Rostenberg. Uh, Dr. Andrew Rostenberg is a board-certified chiropractic physician who serves the Treasure Valley region. Uh, He's a graduate of Northwestern Health Science University in Bloomington, Minnesota, and he's licensed by the state of Idaho as a chiropractic physician. He founded the Red Mountain Natural Medicine uh, in 2011, and it's located in Boise, Idaho. He uses a holistic approach to uncover the causes of illness. Dr. Rostenberg's understanding of the body systems and how they interact with each other have provided him with a unique insight into the body's musculoskeletal structure, biochemistry, and neurology. By using natural non-invasive tools like applied kinesiology, functional medicine, and functional neurology, he thoroughly assesses all aspects of a patient's health. Dr. Rostenberg is also a leading figure and researcher in the field of methylation genetics, allowing him to uncover the genetic imbalances that lead to ill health and disease. As an avid reader and lifetime learner, Dr. Rostenberg continuously keeps us up to date with the latest natural medicine research and recommendations. He also attends a multitude of health seminars and workshops each year taught by the most successful chiropractors and healers in the world. So let's give a hearty health and wellness show welcome to Dr. Rostenberg. Hi, five. <laughs> welcome to the show, Dr. Rostenberg. Uh, thank you, Tiffany. It's nice to be with you all this morning. So, uh, Dr. Rostenberg, can you flesh out your bio a little bit for us? Um, what led you to your interest in health? What led you to become a chiropractor? And above all, why MTHR and methylation? Yeah, that's a good question. I think I can give you some ideas about that. Um, I'm going to actually start that conversation back in third grade. Mm-hmm. When I was in third, when I was in third grade, this will give you an idea of kind of just how my how my mind works. But um, I was in third grade, and uh, that was when Reebok pumps came out, mm-hmm. and I thought Reebok. Reebok pumps were the coolest thing that I'd ever seen. You know, they're on TV, and I was captivated, so I just you know, begged and begged and begged my parents, and they didn't have a lot of extra money, but they uh, they were kind enough to, you know, get me some Reebok pumps. And I got finally got what I asked for, and then I spent the next week in class with a mechanical pencil taking them apart stitch by stitch to see how they worked, and I was just so happy that I could finally... <laughs> get my head wrapped around what a Reebok Punk was and how it worked and what made it do what it did. And then, of course, my parents weren't too excited about that, and uh, I got in a little bit of trouble. But 
that that right there is kind of a summary of sort of my whole approach to health and well-being is I, I just really love knowing how things work and how to solve problems. Um, so chiropractic came into my life when I was 19. One of my best friends uh, growing up, his father was a chiropractor. I mean, I didn't, I wasn't raised in a, you know, a household where the discussion about organic food was taking place or, you know, you were, you know, going to massage therapists or getting, you know, going to the chiropractor, getting it adjusted. So it was kind of a new paradigm for me, but what, what this individual really did, he didn't just, you know, put me down on the table and help my back pain go away. He, he taught me uh, how to think differently about health and well-being. And, and so I, I began to realize that, you know, healthy people don't get sick. Before, I just thought, you know, uh, well, you just get sick because that's what people do. It's just, you know, everything happens by happenstance. It's just we don't know why some people get sick and others don't. It's just, you know, bad luck, boo-hoo. Um, and so that whole idea that, you know, healthy people don't get sick and the body really does heal itself, that kind of uh, captivated my imagination. And, you know, chiropractors have been doing, they've been keeping that philosophy going um, for, you know, for a long time. And even Hippocrates, the father of medicine, when they dig up old uh, archaeological uh, artifacts, there's pictures of Hippocrates giving people upper cervical adjustments and lumbar adjustments, and they haven't yet found found the Hippocrates giving people vaccines and, and pills. So. <laughs> Thank God for that. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's kind of why why chiropractic. I love the philosophy that the body heals itself, and it gives me a it gives me the freedom, I guess, and I mean this in a good way, to be a little weird and to go and learn about other things that um, are just emerging from our scientific research, and so that's why methylation becomes you know, this passion of mine as well. And if I can say one other thing about this, that, you know, when, I, when we're in chiropractic college, of course, we learn about x-rays, we learn about proper alignment of your, your, your musculoskeletal system, really the architecture of the body, if you want to put it in that type of uh, language. But when we got our x-rays back, you know, there's certain things that chiropractors are taught that are called normal variants, okay? So mm -hmm. normal meaning... Normal, I'm not sure normal really is the right word. I would rather that they change it to common variants, right? right? Because norm, normal normal to me is, you know, perfect symmetry, the way that the body was designed to be built. And then you're going to see variations from that in the spine. And so you'll, many of your listeners and maybe even some of the um, hosts on this show will, you know, know someone in their family who has spina bifida mm -hmm. or some changes to the shape of their skeleton and so that was my first introduction that, you know, your vitamins and your nutrition while you're in utero, while your baby's forming, actually influences how you look in the shape of your spine. And if it can, form, it can, if it can influence the shape of your spine, how much can it influence the rest of your health as you go through life? And are there different things we need to be aware of to uh, optimize our genes and optimize our lives as we go through this process? So, Great. So we're talking to Dr. Andrew Rostenberg, and we're going to be addressing the MTHFR gene and methylation. If you want to call into our show with any questions, you can call 718-508-9499. To get back into it, um, at first glance, MTHFR looks to me like a shorthand version of a curse word, but why is MTHFR important and why should we know about it? 
Yeah, that's a great question, Tiffany. And you know, we always we joke about that in the office all the time. And when I when I t show family members my website, they're like, maybe you should change your you should consider changing your your name or your website, you know. And I'm like, well, <laughs> you know, I would I would certainly I would certainly do that. But that's what you know, MTHFR is what it's what science. Uh, has labeled it, and now we're stuck with it. And so, you know, it's really just chemical abbrevi it's chemical abbreviation. And anybody in listening who's gone through organic chemistry uh, realizes that, you know, uh, fluid, you know, fluid speech and you know, nice sounding syllables is not is not what you know organic chemistry is all about. It's it's more of this kind of arcane language of communicate. Science really is a whole different language, and I think that's one of the reasons why we're so uh, Sick is because we're we're kind of kept in the dark as to what the language even means. It's almost mm -hmm. like you know giving math in Latin, and you're you're an English speaking or French speaking person. You can't really understand what's being said. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so you know the reason that MTHFR and is important, and I should also point out that of course that's just an abbreviation for the following mouthful of garbly gook. It basically means you know, methyl tetrahydrofolate reductase. And when you break that word apart, you hear methyl, which is a carbon group. Um, tetra has, you know, it has to do with uh, what position it is on the, car on the molecule. And then, you know, the rest of those syllables just kind of inform what kind of chemistry it's made out of. But what the audience needs to know, the, the important part about MTHFR is that it's dealing with carbon. And we are we are carbon-based living spiritual creatures, and our bodies are made out of carbon, and our DNA is made out of carbon, and you know that's how we live. And our body has a fundamental. I kind of like using the analogy of an economy. So, you know, if you go to the store and you swipe your debit card, or you you know you you give some some carbon units to the cashier, you get to exchange, exchange that for some groceries. You get to go home and feed your family or, you know, uh, fill up some gas and go to work or take a trip, whatever you're, whatever you're going to do that day. That's a lot like how your body deals with carbon. Carbon is kind of the U.S. dollar of our body's economy. And we've built our bodies just dependent on having access to this carbon, um, these methyl groups. And I say methyl because, again, back in chemistry, uh, those of you who are going to remember this and maybe need to review it, one carbon is methyl, um, you know, as you increase the carbons, you get into, you know, uh, propane, butane, octane. Those are just different, um, you know, different words to describe the different numbers of carbons. But, but for today's conversation and for all the mm -hmm. research going on in methylation, it's, it's one carbon and and the, the importance of this, as, as I, I want to point out, is that the value of looking at methylation is that methylation explains a lot of things that don't seem to be connected otherwise, mm -hmm. because it's, hap it's happening at a real fundamental root level in your body's biochemistry. It's happening from the moment of conception up to today. Uh, these methyl groups are being moved around and the processes involved at first seem overwhelming and very complicated. I mean, they don't just, you know, I, I'm con I spend, you know, some of my days being confused and I, and I know that, you know, a lot of doctors don't even, aren't even willing to approach the subject because it's so uh, intimidating. But what I like to remind everybody is that if you're willing to be confused, you're going to learn a lot. Mm -hmm. 
So, so that's methylation. I, I mean, I want to articulate that more and more for your audience, but the reason MTHFR is important at the end of the day is it explains why certain people get sick, certain people get autism, certain people get cancer, when everybody else around them is exposed to the same toxins, garbage, and stress. Mm-hmm. So that, that information right there is probably, at the end of the day, the most important takeaway from this whole conversation is understanding why certain people get sick, um, whereas others don't. And the methylation cycle provides a, a, a window to understand how that, how that happens and what you can do to prevent it. That's mm-hmm. the nice thing. It's not, it's not all just bad news. It actually empowers you to you know, take control of your health and optimize your genes. And there's a lot great strategies that are available to do that naturally. Thanks for explaining carbon that way, uh, comparing it to a currency. I never heard it explained that way, and that really makes it clear about how carbon functions. Um, can you get a little bit more into methylation? And um, I think uh, it converts RNA to DNA. It turns on and off genes. Can you explain the importance of methylation as it occurs in the body? Absolutely. You know, so we've pointed out already that we are carbon-based living creatures, and your body, uh, you know, you have uh, DNA in every cell. So the the DNA in your toe is identical to the DNA in your eyeball, incredibly, right? But how can those two cells be that much different, right? How can the cells that make your retina and actually allow you to see the world around you be be genetically identical to the cells in your toe or uh, you know on your earlobe or something, and the 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 answer to that is that your genes represent this enormous I would dare say infinite um, ca- capability of adapting to information. So your genes, the Human Genome Project uh, has identified uh, about thirty thousand different genes that make us who we are. Those are what science has said. These are the 30,000 genes that that we have as people. And then what they're also going to say is that a gene can be turned on or a gene can be turned off. And so that's kind of a simplistic understanding, but it is is a good model, meaning if you have a gene for, you know, dark hair and you have a gene for, for blonde hair and you inherit those one from each parent, if the gene for blonde hair is shut off, then the gene for dark hair will express because it's kind of an either-or uh, math problem. But all the genes in your body, in every cell, as I said, they're all identical. So these 30,000 genes you have in each of your cells, of course, they're wrapped up in your chromosomes, your uh, you know 23 pairs of, of chromosomes. Um, the genes are turned on and off by getting a little methyl group stuck on top of it. So it's kind of like a light switch. When the switch is turned on, there's no methyl group on top of that gene, and your body will have the ability to turn on, to read that information, and then make, you know, do the actions that come after that. So after DNA basically gives instructions to build proteins, that's what DNA is. It's mm-hmm. like a, you know, like God's blueprint for life. And when you have a methyl group on top of it, it's kind of like the book is closed for that chapter. And when you take the methyl group off, it's like opening up the book. So, so you it's, can say, a, 
A methyl group one carbon bound to three hydrogens. Is that what a methyl group is? Yes, ma'am. That is okay. a that is a methyl group. And so there's one. So if you think of carbon, carbon has four connecting points. You know, based on its chemistry, it's going to typically it's going to form four bonds. And when it has the methyl group, three of those parking spaces are already taken up with the hydrogen. And there's one parking space left. There's one bonding site left, mm -hmm. and that's what attaches to your DNA. Um, and so as I was saying, you know, you, you have 30,000 genes and they can turn on or off. So, you know, the math problem to figure out how much variability there is in that system, and I'm not a mathematician, I don't, you know, I'm not, I don't, I don't play one on television, but I've, <laughs> <laughs> I've figured this, these, 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 uh, these are the, the equations we want to look at real quick. Mm -hmm. You have 30,000 genes and you have two different possibilities. So it's, it's the number two, or excuse me, it's the number 30,000 to the second power. That's, what math would say, that's how many different vari variations there are. And that, you know, that's a pretty big number. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. what we know, what we really know about genes is that uh, researchers like Bruce Lipton, and if your audience has ever heard of him, he's great to check out. Bruce Lipton, he's a genius um, stem, stem cell researcher. But he's, he's uh, pointed out that one gene can make about 30,000 different proteins. So if you have... 30,000 genes and each gene has 30,000 variations. Now you're getting now you're getting a number that's so big our minds can't comprehend. We can't comprehend what 30,000 to the to the 30,000th power is. And to, mm. to me, that's a better reflection of the potential that we all have as as people as you know to to express health. And that explains also the differences between everyone. How there, how can we have seven billion people on Earth and no two people really look the same? Mm. Um, pretty incredible. Um, so so that's methylation in terms of genetics, turning it on and off. But what's interesting is that every cell in your body has a methylation cycle. So some of your listeners have heard of glutathione. Right. And glut mm. glutathione is a lot like, I, th I consider it like body armor, okay? So when you when you get sick, uh, we've, we've, we've heard that when you have the cold, you take zinc, you take vitamin C, you take selenium. Well, those are, those help you get over the cold. I've, I've experienced that. How about you guys? Yes. Oh, yeah. Definitely with vitamin C. So, so does vitamin C, like, kill bacteria and viruses? I mean, how does that actually help you feel better is kind of the, the open-ended question. Mm -hmm. uh, well, what it, what it actually does is it optimizes your methylation cycle because you need zinc, selenium and vitamin C to re, to produce glutathione and to recycle it because glutathione is like the body armor that your immune system wears. So if your immune system is out there killing viruses and it's fighting with big guns but it's naked and it can't defend itself from the explosions and the shrapnel flying around, then your immune system is going to get damaged really easy. I mean, it can, it can deliver a blow because it, it, can, it can deliver the blow but it's also it can't protect itself. So when you take zinc, selenium, and vitamin C, just as an example, those nutrients recycle and help you produce an increase in glutathione, which is what your immune system uses as its antioxidant to protect itself. Mm. So I think so. That's one one example of how the methylation cycle works. Um, and then the other the other aspects of methylation, and I. You know, again, if you're just tuning into the subject, you know, methylation becomes, it's kind of a, you know, like people ask, well, what does that mean and everything like that. And I hope I hope that, you know, you just take this information you're hearing today and you just begin to do some reading because it's, 
it is accessible to you. You don't have to be a PhD to understand this stuff. You just have to have a willingness to be a little confused for a little while. But like all things, the more you work on it, the more you learn. Mm-hmm. Um, but tissue growth. So I mentioned before that, uh, you know, you have to be able to have the carbon on the DNA in order to control which genes turn on. But you also have to make new DNA. So when cells divide, they double the amount of DNA and then they make, then they form two cells. And then those two cells double the amount of DNA and then they form four cells. So all that, all that DNA production, all that cell division, all that growth requires that your methylation cycle is working. So that's another big part of the whole picture is, that, that's why it's so important to understand or to get an appreciation from for these this carbon cycle because it's literally the most fundamental you know process in our body producing not just DNA but proteins enzymes it's tissue growth it, it explains why some people when they grow up are you know um, have like a, a dent in their chest they have they're mm-hmm. born with cleft palate they have other different physical attributes, and it's all coming back to what's going on inside of their cells with carbon. It's fascinating. Mm. Mm-hmm. So if your body uh, doesn't have a proper methylation going on, you can end up with developmental issues or neurotube defects? Absolutely. So absolutely, Tiffany. And, and I, want, I would like to, to just suggest that we look at it in three different points of view. Mm-hmm. So so. There's there's a methylation problem that starts right at the moment of conception. That's a different set of problems than one that shows up during puberty or than the one that shows up, you know, in middle age or beyond. And I think there's kind of three different categories. If the problem starts at the very beginning of life, let's say that the mom is under a lot of stress, she's, you know, uh, not the healthiest person, she's had some toxic exposure, she's had some, you know... Uh, hormone imbalances, had some issues with her cycle, some heavy periods, some fibroids. Um, Maybe she's a little aged. She's maybe in her late 30s. Um, Those are situations where, you know, there may not be enough methyl group around to produce uh, when cells divide in her uterus if she gets pregnant. Um, And I'm not trying to, you know, be like trying to scare any females out there who are trying to get pregnant. Please don't interpret it this way. Don't, don't, Don't be up at night worrying about this. But just to show you how it works, if you take cells, I'll just use an example. If you take white blood cells from your immune system and you put them in two different Petri dishes, right? You have two identical little dishes. You took out two cells. And then what you did is you put a little bit of nutrition in the cell, uh, like like what the kind of fluid that you'd find inside your body, like plasma. Mm-hmm. And then you took out folic, you took out methyl group, you took folate away, you took it out of one of those petri dishes, and you left it in the other. What you're going to find is when those white blood cells divide, when they separate and divide into two new cells, if if you create a situation where there's no folate in a petri dish no methyl groups. When the cells divide, the cells that are created have Down syndrome or some kind of chromosome disease. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So you, you basically so we can we can create Down syndrome in a petri dish by taking away methyl groups from the environment. So we work backwards and say, okay, in the human body, if a mom is growing a baby and the mom doesn't have enough methyl groups the odds of her having a cell divide in her uterus with the wrong number of chromosomes goes up significantly. Mm-hmm. 
the, the cure, of course, is to make sure that mom gets lots of green leafy vegetables and is eating a wonderful clean diet and gets the right kind of folate in her body, and that will essentially prevent the occurrence um, of mm-hmm. that type of a, of a challenge. So can I just try and clarify a little bit? So a person sure. can have a methylation problem but not necessarily have the MTHFR gene. But if you have the MTHFR gene, you definitely have a methylation problem. Is that correct? I think that's a wonderful summary, yes. Mm-hmm. And the envi- you know, people with MTHFR genes can never show any symptoms. They can live a long, healthy, happy, awesome life. Mm-hmm. It's just that... So I guess we should back up and just point this out to the audience as well. So we talked about a lot of, you know, uh, heady genetic stuff already. Uh, you know, bear with us. It's a lot like drinking from the fire hydrant. Um, <laughs> so, you know, when you have an MTHFR gene problem that you inherit, what it means is your body is slower at converting folic acid into folate. Mm-hmm. And and what that means is is that your body really can't use folic acid uh, until it gets converted into a more natural, optimized form called 5-methyl folate, okay? 5-methyl mm-hmm. tetrahydrofolate. That's, what, that's the big idea to take away from this whole understanding of MTHFR. It just means that the road, instead of being an eight-lane, you know, superhighway that's you can go full speed on, and it doesn't matter how much folic acid is in your body, you can convert it into the right kind. Individuals like myself, and I mean, it's it's almost 75% of the population has one of these genes, so it's not it's mm. not even rare any, anymore. It's just, there's just, uh, there's a lot of it going on. Mm. But it just means that individuals with MTHFR problems, as Tiffany has pointed out, are going to be more susceptible to health problems if they do not get the right amount of folate in their body because their body is not as quick to produce folate from folic acid. So I kind of look at it, the the way I explain it is that people with MTHFR issues who have the C677 or the 1298, you know, genetic um, polymorphism that we talk about, and again, a polymorphism just means it's, it's like you have a a train that's 600 cars long and, and they're all supposed to be red cars and then you have like a blue car on number position 300. Mm-hmm. And, and that's all that's changed in the whole train, but that change in color would be analogous to a change in a sequence in your, in your genes and that changes a little bit the speed of the, of the enzyme. So the NTHFR issues that we inherit from our parents, what they do is they change the shape of the the lock. So if you think of folic acid like a key or like a key, mm-hmm. people with people with MTHFR problems have a slightly different shaped lock. That it's just a little it's just a little bit harder. You have to wiggle that key in a little bit more and wiggle it back and forth before the lock will open. Whereas people without MTHFR issues, their key and lock are, are moving a lot faster. It's just that there's not a lot of, uh, there's no friction, there's no issues getting the key into the lock and opening the lock, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. 78%, that's a very, very large number of the population that will have this gene. So um, if um, MTHFR 
is so prevalent, what are the symptoms? How would you even suspect that you have it? So that's a great question as well. And what you would look for, you would look at your family tree is what I would start with. So I would I would look at your grandparents and, you know, I never uh, had the pleasure of knowing my grandfathers because they, you know, they passed away at way too young, you know, 58 and 63. That's that's too young. That's like middle age. And and what I came to learn is that, you know, one of my grandparents died of, uh, you know, cardiovascular heart, heart disease and the other one died of brain cancer. So those are two giveaways that there's a methylation problem in your family, people who are susceptible to cancer, heart disease, and depression. And the reason that cancer, heart disease, and depression are methylation-related problems is that the lack of methyl groups in your body, the lack of carbon atom, the one carbon methyl groups, the lack of that causes heart disease because it creates inflammation and you get high levels of homocysteine and that begins to damage uh, your cardiovascular system and promotes a lot of stress through the heart and the arteries. That's mm-hmm. a lack a lack of methyl groups. Cancer is a lack of methyl groups because remember, if you cannot... Remember that the methyl group turns the gene off. And if you cannot turn the gene off because you do not have enough methyl groups to stick on all those genes that you want to shut down. You can't close the book of, you know, the book of DNA. The DNA book is going to get read without mm-hmm. that methyl group. Then you're going to have less control over whether the cancer gene gets turned on or not. And and so I just want to share one quick uh, research tidbit with everybody that they, the studies were done. Um, this was done at Duke University. I believe the, the PhD's uh, last name was Jertle. I believe his name was Dr. Randy Jertle. And what he did was he bred mice um, that had the gene for obesity. And, you know, the mother had the gene turned on, and so the kids were, the, the young mice were large and overweight, obese, and then just so on and so forth through the generations. And then what they did is they gave the mice, um, you know, methyl groups. They gave them folate in their diet, and then the mom that was obese would give birth to a normal-shaped, normal, healthy mm. uh, offspring. And then they did the, another experiment in Washington State. This, this, the name of this PhD escaped me for the moment, but they used BPA. So BPA, as many of you know, it's a, it's a endocrine-disrupting carcinogenic toxin that you know we've been exposed to we all used to microwave stuff in plastic and mm-hmm. you know it's it's still used to line like aluminum cans and stuff like this but bpa they took a they took a mouse and they sprayed they 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 got bpa into her system and this mouse then gave birth to daughters who got cancer the daughters gave birth to granddaughters who got cancer and the great granddaughters got cancer and it was a huge study because it showed that exposure in generation one caused cancer in generation two, three, and four. Mm-hmm. Even, the, even though the daughters, granddaughters, and great-granddaughters never were exposed to BPA. And so what happened is, is that being exposed to toxins is consuming resources. So the mother has to detoxify BPA, and that's going to waste or soak up, or I should say, burn up her nutrition to detoxify the chemical and as she gives birth and grows a baby there's less nutrition available to make sure the genes of the baby 
got the methyl groups put on the DNA. Mm-hmm. And so the error got passed on and on and on to turn to, to allow cancer to grow. But the good news is they did this study again and they gave the the mother, the, the great grandmother, the original mouse, another um round of BPA, but they also gave her vitamin B nine, they gave her folate. Mm-hmm. And every and then she gave birth to daughters who didn't get cancer and nobody got cancer for four generations. So they blocked it with nutrition. I think that's really a powerful story. Well, can we get a little bit more into the differences between folic acid and folate, um, how folic acid builds up in people with MTHFR gene and causes kind of a traffic jam and causes them to be bad detoxifiers? Absolutely. And this is a pretty this is a pretty important subject and there's a lot of I think misunderstanding and again I'm you know I'm not the world's authority on on you know methylation research I just spend all my free time reading it and working on it in my clinic um but what we've discovered is and I I used to think as well that you know folic acid was a a toxin that it really was this man-made chemical that uh is is making people super sick and of course, the truth is, you know, somewhere in between. That's not that's not quite accurate. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what ends up happening in your body, as as we mentioned before, the MTHFR gene is a step in a recipe that is that has to go on in every cell in order to provide the cell with a methyl group. It's like hot potato. It has to. It comes in on one molecule, then the potato gets passed to another one and then that one holds on to it for a second and it passes it to another one. And what happens is is folic acid has to go through more more steps in order to can get converted into the form your body can use. Mm-hmm. I think that's the important thing to understand is that folic acid is just a different it's just a different chemical uh, nature, slightly slight slightly different uh, type of folate. And because there's all kinds of different folates, there's folinic acid, there's 5-methyl tetrahydrofolate, there's folic acid, um, there's several different derivatives, and they all have basically the same chemical shape. So folic acid was synthesized by a man in like 1946, something sometime around then. And we we erroneously thought that it was man-made, but what we now know is that our gut bacteria actually poop and provide for us vitamins. And one thing that gut bacteria poop out is folic acid. I we found this uh, to be true. So when people have really high levels of folic acid in their body, it'll usually be tested for as unmetabolized folic acid. What that means is one of two things in our clinic. This is how we interpret it. It means that they've been taking way too much folic acid, they've been eating standard American fortified food that's got a lot of folic acid in it, and it's, and then they have an MTHFR problem that's allowing the folic acid to keep building and building and building because they're so slow at converting it. But now we have new information um, as of last year that people are dealing with gut infections. And, you know, you think of all the people in this country who are on antibiotics or have been on antibiotics, who are on proton pump inhibitors. Uh, you think of how stress affects our digestive system and how, how much of a negative impact that has. Um, what we found is that people have small intestinal bowel overgrowth. They have, they have infections and bacteria in their gut uh, because of these different 
factors uh, that I've just mentioned. And the bacteria is usually an, uh, you know, an overgrowth of what's normally there. So I'm not saying that they have, you know, a terrible, you know, bacteria that doesn't belong in their gut. What I'm suggesting is and what we find is that it's the normal type of bacteria. It's just way overgrown. And so what's happening is people's people's guts are producing large amounts of folic acid, and sometimes they produce large amounts of B6. And you get this high level of folic acid in your blood because your gut is so imbalanced that it's, it's just dumping folic acid into your system. Um, this is what happens when people take vitamins. They, they might do a genetic test and they'll find that they have NTHFR, C677++, they've got all these other uh, related enzymes that are off or slowed down a little bit. Mm. And they say, oh my gosh, this is the answer to all my problems. I'm going to run out, you know, I'm going to order some methyl support and I'm going to get it and I'm going to feel great. Mm -hmm. and, so, and sometimes, you know, they don't get me wrong, we use this stuff all the time. Uh, it does help many, many, many of our patients, but there is... There are people who take B vitamins and they get way worse very quickly. And what's happening is they're throwing fertilizer, mm -hmm. rocket fuel down their throat onto an in, onto weeds and dandelions and thistle that's going to take that fertilizer and grow super fast. So we have to treat the gut first in situations like that. So I, I didn't want to get too off topic, but I just want to point out that folic acid is A, made by man and put in our food as fortification. Mm -hmm. And B, it comes from your gut. We've always had folic acid in our body. Why would our body have the ability to convert it into folate if it wasn't there since the beginning of time? Mm. I mean, mm. you know. That's a good point. Um, I wanted to open up uh, an opportunity for Tom and Peter to give some of their experiences with uh, MTHFR and methylation. So, uh, Peter, do you want to give some examples yeah, sure. Um, there's a couple of things, you know, now that I've learned about this a little bit more that I can look back on and that I think probably were related to having uh, these polymorphisms. And I, I should state really quickly, uh, my particular profile in regard to MTHFR is that I'm uh, what's called heterozygous uh, for both uh, the 677 and the 1298 polymorphisms that Dr. Rostenberg mentioned a couple minutes ago. Uh, so one of the things that I think actually happened, speaking of how it affects the body, uh, when I was growing up, um, I had a lot of problems with my uh, right knee in particular, and uh, it would uh, be extremely painful sometimes. I used to have to actually wear this sort of like a little wraparound uh, brace to hold it in place so I would be able to walk. And what I think that stems from now is the fact that uh, my leg lengths are actually a little bit different, and I think that they grew differently. Um, so, uh, and, uh, you know, as Dr. Rustenberg mentioned, uh, things like uh, body symmetry uh, can be related to how uh, and when you methylated when you were younger, starting with when you're in the womb. And then uh, besides that, um, what the way I started looking into this uh, originally and the way I found out about this topic in the first place was that I was having heart issues. 
And I had started uh, in my late 30s uh, intermittently having uh, chest pain uh, and symptoms where I would get like shooting pains that would go down my left arm, um, you know, things you might consider uh, to be sort of warning signs for something like a heart attack or something like that. And I had gone a couple of times to the ER to get checked out, and each time I did, you know, they do the EKG, they draw your blood, you know, look for a couple of, uh, they do a couple of different tests to see if you're uh, in some kind of cardiac distress, and the results always came back negative. And, you know, people looked at me like I was basically, uh, you know, just kind of uh, uh, like it was all in my head. So, Finally, there was this one time a uh, little bit more than a year ago where I had an experience where I'd gone to uh, give blood and then I went to go get something to eat right after that. And I ended up uh, passing out several times in succession. Uh, and, you know, they ended up calling the ambulance and everything. I didn't actually go to the hospital that day, but afterwards there was this increase in chest pain that I was experiencing. And so my parents were uh, encouraging me to go see a heart doctor. And uh, I didn't want to go, you know, to go to a quote-unquote regular heart doctor because I was afraid that they would just, you know, basically run the same tests, do the same thing that had to happen when I'd gone to the ER. So I found a functional medicine doctor who specialized in cardiac issues. And I went in, and uh, she tested me for something called endothelial dysfunction, uh, which is a problem with the cellular lining of your of your blood vessels, basically, and found out that I had a problem with this. But I had none of the risk factors for it. Uh, you know, I was uh, fairly young. Uh, I wasn't uh, overweight and so on. So... She thought that, you know, the one other thing that we could rule out was that I might have an MTHFR polymorphism. So I had a blood draw. Uh, it got, can I jump yeah, in yeah, here real quick? Me. Dr. Sure. Rosenberg, how can MTHFR uh, play a part in endothelial dysfunction? Is that another aspect of a, a failure to develop properly because you don't have enough methylation in the womb? Well, you know, that's uh, that's more, when, when you see, uh, like, cardiovascular disease uh, developing in an adult, it's it's not so much what happened at a young age. Mm -hmm. it's, it's more that over time, as the person lives, there's just a steady, like, increase in inflammation and dysfunction. It's a little bit at a time building over, you know, it's sort of death by a thousand cuts. Mm. Um, when... And as I mentioned earlier, you know, you have you have problems that happen during the womb, and those are really severe. I mean, I'm talking about people born with spina bifida that's, like, life-threatening, uh, cleft palates, fetal alcohol syndrome, Kleinfelter syndrome, Marfan syndrome, um, you know, problems with your chromosomes. That's obviously more severe mm -hmm. than than going into the doctor at 35 or in your 30s and saying, you know, I look, I, you know, I would... I meet the definition of what medicine says is healthy. And, hey, I've got this weird heart thing going on. I've got inflammation in my uh, in my vasculature, in my blood vessels. So I think what Peter, you know, from what I would understand and from what Peter's describing, it's more of the when you have a methylation problem, you're prone to being inflamed. Mm -hmm. And one of the one of the risk factors for 
for cardiovascular issues is homocysteine. And when, right, when you right. talk about your endothelium, yeah, so it's just the disruption of the inside of your blood vessels is really uh, the triggering factor. It's, some, it's always some form of inflammation. And then that starts the process of causing what people know as, you know, clogging of your arteries or getting cholesterol on your arteries. But, but definitely methylation, people with methylation imbalances are just more inflamed because they have more homocysteine. They're not, as, they're not detoxing as quickly. And so that's, that's kind of the general idea behind cardiovascular disease and methylation. It's, a, it's inflammation that, doesn't get, that goes unnoticed and untreated for too long. Hmm. Okay, Peter, you've gotten to the point where you, your uh, functional medicine doctor decided to test you for MTHFR? Right. Yeah, and uh, thank you, Dr. Ostenberg, for bringing that up because one of the reasons that uh, she wanted to look at that was because she wanted to check homocysteine levels, which we did, and they, they ended up being high. And so... Uh, you, we, uh, that's why we ended up doing the genetic test, and once we figured out exactly what was going on there with those particular polymorphisms, you know, we started developing a program where I started supplementing to try primarily, more than anything, to bring my homocysteine down. And, you know, that's Can something you, I uh, hope Peter, that... Yeah. If I may, just, would you mind sharing with us what... Would you remember what number your homocysteine was in the beginning? I, yeah, uh, actually, hold on. Let me take a look here. I've got uh, numbers in front of me. And let's see, I started at 7.4, which I've, is not terribly high. It's not astronomical, but I think it is uh, in the high side of normal, if I understand correctly. But Dr. Rustenberg can comment on that. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, some, some doctors say eight's the upper limit. Somewhere between seven and eight is as high as we like to see it. And we don't like to see it below four either. That's, you know, something too low is not, as, is not beneficial either. Um, so that, that's getting towards the upper end of normal for sure. Right. Okay. And it's, it's pretty much stayed there since I've, been, uh, since I've been treating it in the last year. Well, I have noticed that there, you know, most of the symptoms I've been experiencing have either calmed down or uh, gone away altogether, but uh, my homocysteine levels have actually been pretty stubborn. For what it's You know, and, and sure, and I mean, that's just showing you, too, that, you know, blood tests and lab tests and gene tests are just a tiny picture of what the total experience of being alive is like. I mean, we don't want to treat a blood test. We want to treat people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can have perfect homocysteine but have, you know, all the risk factors for heart disease and still need to be uh, supporting that. So I think that's it's important to remember when you work with uh, professionals and healthcare providers to, uh, you know, it's... The best tool is to just look at the patient and talk to them and see what's going on with their body. Uh, if you, you know, somehow all the power went out and, you know, an EMP goes off and we get kicked back into the Stone Age, it's not, it's not really going to change my practice that much. I mean, you, there's so much value of doing, you know, so, but, but definitely. Um, so go ahead. You're, you saw some benefit from the methyl groups and the support you took. Can you re share with us what kind of vitamins you took? 
Yeah, well, so what I started thinking was, uh, let's see, sorry, I'm just grabbing it really quickly. So what I started taking was uh, something called Knuckle Protect. That's what my doctor uh, started recommending for me. Uh, and it puts together a number of uh, a number of different things. Uh, there's riboflavin, uh, as riboflavin, 5-phosphate sodium, uh, vitamin B6 as uh, pyridoxal 5-phosphate, uh, uh, the kind of folate that you've been talking about, where it's uh, five methyl uh, tetrahydrofolic acid uh, instead of just regular folic acid, right? And then vitamin B12 is methylcobalamin, uh, and then finally uh, something called uh, betaine uh, anhydrous. And so uh, it's there's about six ingredients that are uh, just packaged together in a single supplement, and I I take it once a day. That sounds like a yeah. We use something very similar in our office, and I think you're you're on the right track with what you're taking. And that that's trying. What the reason they give you all those different methyl groups is that you have you know you have backup systems in your body. And what I don't like, I just want to point out that you know working with you know hundreds and hundreds of people on the, with their genetic issues is that. You know, your genes are not your destiny, but they are your tendency. And you're not, we aren't sick because of our genes. We're sick because the world is sick. Uh, the planet <laughs> is polluted and our diet are, you know, I mean, I just want to point out that, that, that we're, you know, there's a few people who are born, like I mentioned, with, because their methylation problem started at birth. They have like a severe, like they're missing genetic material from their body. I mean, that is totally a genetic health problem. Everybody else, uh, we have the responsibility to change the environment that ends inside of our head and inside of our bodies. Mm -hmm. And that's what starts to change your genetic expression to such a more positive, uh, you know, way to be and live. Um, and, I mean, that's, our, that's what we do in the office is coach people on how to change their lifestyle. What do they need to change with their diet? What do they, do they need? Are they sleeping? Are they pooping? Are they drinking enough water? What's their history like? You know, do they have a gut infection? And I know we'll probably get into that um, here shortly. But there's, this is a Peter's example is I understand you right, Peter. I mean, you saw kind of chronic pain and joint issues and you know bizarre symptoms that medicine's kind of scratching their head, going, you know, it seems like you have a heart problem, but nothing. You know, you all your tests are normal, but now you take your methylation support to optimize your your pathways and and your symptoms are practically gone. Is that correct? Yeah, well, uh, they've uh, improved quite a bit. Uh, you know, I'm still trying to work a little bit to uh, find out, you know, uh, how to bring everything into the balance it needs to be uh, and to take care of everything. So, like my, my uh, chest symptoms, for example, the chest pain symptoms, I would say that that's 90% cleared up. Uh, every once in a while, I will still experience the same kind of symptoms, but it's much more rare now than it had been for probably the five years before I started uh, doing the right kind of supplementation. And then uh, the one other thing I hadn't mentioned, too, in terms of uh, things that I'd experienced, 
and symptoms were that uh, I've had a problem pretty much all my life uh, with fairly high anxiety levels. And, uh, you know, as a kid, uh, when I was in grade school, I was always known as being, you know, like one of the really sensitive kids. Um, it didn't take much to upset me or, uh, you know, make me cry about something. And when I got older, you know, uh, that wasn't, I, I didn't always express it the same way, but I would still, uh, you know, be very sensitive about things, uh, be stressed really easily, feel anxious really easily. Uh, and I always thought, you know, that was just me, that's my personality. Uh, you know, it was true of a lot of people in my family also when I look back at it now. But that's something else that uh, once I started supplementing, uh, I've noticed uh, quite a bit of improvement in that area. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily consider it, you know, perfect right now, but I have noticed a real difference. Well, thanks for sharing your experiences, Peter. And that was a very good comment that you made, Dr. Rostenberg, about genetics not being destiny. It's kind of an empowering message that people do have the ability to change. They can take their health into their own hands. Um, I think you have to. I yeah. think you have to. I think radio shows like yours and the alternative, you know, the alternative news and media is kind of the journalistic component or, you know, uh, journalistic, um, you know, equivalent to natural medicine and working on these kind of cutting-edge natural Ideas, And I want to just say that, you know, medicine will eventually come around, but in 20 or 30 years, we may be all sick or, you know, beyond repair at that point. So you just have to take matters into your own hand and go. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no, there's no time like the present, man. Yeah. I think in a lot of ways, um, modern allopathic medicine is still in the Stone Age. But uh, hopefully we'll make some strides. I wanted to give um, Tom a chance to share his experiences with MTHFR. Sure. Um, I'm, I'd say that I'm very similar to Dr. Rosberg in that I like to figure out how things work and always have. Um, so I've, I've always taken the approach, even from a relatively early age, of wanting to know why things work or why things go wrong. Um, very similar to Peter in that um, very similar personality with um anxiety and being quite sensitive. Um, It was more um, a gradual series of minor health problems that built up over the years. Um, There was um, depression at university. Um, uh, I developed hay fever, um, began to develop food allergies um, in my mid-twenties. So trying to work out what these things were. I, I um, tried different diets, going dairy-free and uh, eventually gluten-free. Um, terrible problems with trying to do vegan. That didn't work. Um, and slowly testing to the, the point where I've, I've tried to eliminate as much um, external um, inflammation um, so um, sorting out gut health and things like that. But there was always um, this uh, inability to deal with um, stress. I think that's probably the main one, along with 
um, uh, kind of chronic fatigue syndromes. Um, so I think they were the, the biggest ones um, that were still nicking at me. Um, uh, lack of capacity when it came to exercise as well. That was always quite interesting. Um, Yeah, if I can... Uh, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, How do you mean I was, I was, uh, lack of capacity, Tom? Lack of capacity um, exercising? You just couldn't muster up the energy? Uh, yes. So it was... Uh, um, I mean, even from sort of the age of um, six or seven, it was something that I noticed compared to everyone else is that um, running and things like that, I would get exhausted pretty quickly. And th this is something that my parents relayed to me as well, is that I was generally quite um, sensitive to um, excitement and things like that. But I'd also get tired extremely quickly. Um, so it's, it's um, yeah, so exercise, um, stressful situations, I would get overstressed. Um, if my adrenaline gets going, I can get sort of shakes and things like that. Have you Does seen uh, similar situations to uh, Tom's, Dr. Rostenberg? Absolutely. I mean, that's a common, um, a common type of uh, presentation. And, you know, I want to introduce a... a a vocabulary word for for our audience too that you know we've been talking about genes and the gene your genetic report represents your genotype that's the gene that you inherit then you have what's called your hap then you have your haplotype and your haplotype is like groups of genes we're going to kind of get into that here in just a minute to touch on um you know Tom's experience and even also what Peter has has mentioned as well but what we end up seeing in people when, when a patient walks into my office or when you walk into a doctor's office, what, you're, what you are is a phenotype. And your phenotype is your genes, all of them, expressed over time with the environment kind of making, you know, uh, influences. In other words, when someone walks into the doctor with chest pain and left shoulder and left arm pain, you know, they have a phenotype of being of having cardiovascular disease. Uh, when someone comes in and says, you know, no matter what I do, I'm just super depressed. I have no motivation. Uh, I've got a lot of, you know, I just don't have any joy in life. I'm, I just feel down all the time. Well, that phenotype is depression. So I, I just want to introduce that idea um, because phenotype is kind of what science uses to describe what your symptoms are, what your genes plus the environment is producing in your body, okay? And what we do by working with patients, uh, what you do by working with your methylation cycle is you rescue the phenotype, which means rather than listen to a prediction like, oh, because of your heart disease and your genes, you're destined to have XYZ disease and you're going to live XYZ months, you know, they tell that to cancer patients all the time. Well, when cancer patients beat cancer, naturally what they've done is they've rescued the phenotype. They've They've derailed the train that science says this is what's going to happen next by changing the environment. And so I just want to introduce that word. I think it's a, a good way to understand kind of what we're talking about. But when, we, when, when, when individuals have a low tolerance for stress, 
um, what we're going to be looking at is that, in fact, they're actually stressed out all the time underneath the surface. And what I mean is that when you exercise, for example, as we all know, we've all exercised, we've all felt our pulse go up, our sweat increase, our breathing increase, and, you know, we've, um, we've basically felt what happens. You know, it's released into your bloodstream, but it's also released into your brain, and it's a little bit different. It's called noradrenaline. Um, these are the catecholamine, uh, you know, stress hormones, stress transmitters. This is even beyond MTHFR. I think this is the area that really affects how people feel. I think MTHFR affects your risk for disease and, uh, you know, um, health problems. But I really think on a day-to-day -day basis, what makes you feel good or bad or anxious or, you know, um, worrisome or have chronic pain or have insomnia what does that are the genes COMT and MAOA. And, and those genes, um, they work with MTHFR, but they break down your neurotransmitters of stress. So, you know, when patients can't tolerate exercise, what I would suggest is happening is that their body is already flooded with or full of adrenaline, norepinephrine, and they have too much dopamine already. And people who have a lot of dopamine in their brain are are very intelligent people. They're super sharp. They have great memory. Uh, they can take tests really well. They're probably the type of people in uh, school who don't have to they don't have to study a long time for tests. They just are good test takers. And this is what science the, the studies have proven that people with a slower version of COMT and a slower version of MAOA are going to be more uh, have higher levels of dopamine. And when you're healthy and the world is a nice, nourishing, calm place and there's not a lot of stress around, you're actually you're born with more dopamine in your brain, so you're going to be sharper. Mm -hmm. But what happens is, is when you start eating processed food and all the toxins in the air, water, and soil, all the you know uh, things that we deal with, all the stresses, what it does is it pushes people into having too much dopamine and catecholamines in their body. And that's where you start to get unexplained anxiety, insomnia, a um, lot of uncomfortable feelings that people go through are due to the, the side effects of stress hormones. Um, if we can agree that stress is the biggest health threat we all face every day, uh, then we want to look at the stress hormones as the, like, those are what's those are what are uh, mediating that, or kind of translating the stress in the world into the stress into our body. And so um, I'm just, it sounds like Tom uh, and, you know, and even Peter mentioned this, just being a little more anxious. It's a conversation we have every day in my office because uh, people are not, they're not effective at breaking down their stress neurotransmitters as well as they could be. Okay. Interesting. Thank you very so much. That, that explains things a bit more. Um, I wonder if I can ask a question for the ladies in the audience and how MTHFR kind of interacts with menopausal or perimenopausal symptoms? Absolutely. And, you know, um, about 85% of my practice are females, and it's simply because women are just smarter about their health. They're just way more, they pay way better attention to it. 
Um, and guys kind of got to, we got to sort of grow up and get with, the, get with the program here because, uh, you know, we're not getting any healthier. Um, but definitely MTHFR uh, is going to make certain things more likely. Um, it involves your detoxification system, so you, you have to methylate as part of your way for your liver and your gallbladder to get rid of estrogen, for example. So if you can imagine estrogen, um, you know, it's it's in your body, you produce it in your ovaries, it's, it's produced in your adrenal glands, it's, it's also produced from fat tissue. The estrogen that you make every day as a woman, and this is also true of men to some degree, uh, you have to get rid of it. If you just simply make something all the time but never get rid of it, then the level is going to go sky high. So your body has to re- remove estrogen on a daily basis. And the pathway that that takes place in is in the liver and then it goes into the gallbladder. And we know that women have a lot of problems with their gallbladder. Um, the typical person who has gallbladder stones is female, fat, 40, fertile. She's had a lot of children. Each time you get pregnant, you know, there's 30 times the amount of estrogen going into your body than uh, just regular living. So your methylation being slowed, having an NTHFR issue that's not yet being supported, I should point that out, that's not yet being addressed, just, you know, eating regular food, not knowing that it's there, not knowing that you're slow in that pathway, you're going to be able to, um, what's going to happen is women with that gene, that genotype are going to have a lot of inflammatory estrogen in their body. Um, methylation calms down your uh, hot estrogens. And when I say hot estrogens, I want to point out that estrogen, once it goes into your liver, can turn into two, two uh, different outcomes. One, one outcome is that the estrogen is more inflammatory than it was. It's the type of estrogen that's related to fibroids, endometriosis, heavy bleeding, extremely bad cramps, um, and in worst cases, like uterine and breast uh, and cervical or ovarian cancer. Mm-hmm. The other type of uh, estrogen that your liver can produce is a very calming estrogen. It's a very, uh, you know, does opposite effects. It has, of course, a methyl group attached to it. So if you methylate your estrogens in your liver, you protect your body from the effects of a very important but powerful hormone that can get out of balance. So I absolutely you know, the methylation nutrients, we use it, um, we have tools that combine uh, methylfolate and methyl B12 with some of the uh, other nutrients from, you know, the plant kingdom, uh, herbal estrogens and things that really help turn the li- speed the liver up in its ability to convert toxic estrogen into the calming type. And, you know, that's a, that's a strategy to avoid cancer. It's a strategy to stay cancer-free if anybody in your family has dealt with breast cancer. Mm-hmm. It's just it's amazing how many... This is why methylation is so valuable. You get leverage. You do one thing right, and you get dozens of benefits down the road. So, okay. Well, I wanted to touch briefly on a couple of other um, topics related to MTHFR. The first one is autism. Um, That's kind of a hot topic. Um, A lot of people blame it strictly on vaccines, but not all children who are vaccinated get autism. So how does MTHFR um, come into play when it comes to autism? Well, let me uh, first point out, you know, that autism is a, it's a very complex uh, challenge. Mm -hmm. And, And what they're finding with kids with autism 
uh, is that they all have a gut problem. They all have a, a big change in their gut bacteria. And, you know, your brain health is very much a reflection of your gut health. And we can all agree that autism is a brain-based dysfunction, a brain-based disorder. Um, there's a researcher by the name of Stephanie Sineff. She's a PhD at MIT in, in Massachusetts, and she's basically proven that um, if nothing's changed with the rate of glyphosate use uh, in our food supply, that by the by 2025. Uh, one in one in 50% of the population will have autism if the current trends are not altered. So we're living in a very uh, interesting time where information is easy to gain, but it's mostly meaningless. Whereas the real problems are ignored until they, you know, just show up at your doorstep. And I know that's not true uh, with your listeners and with mm-hmm. us on the air, but we do have a we do have a some work to do. And so um, you know, with with autism. Methylation plays a role because when when inoculations are given, uh, you're introducing into the bloodstream. You're bypassing the you're bypassing the defense mechanisms that the body has. Mm-hmm. So your body has all these defense mechanisms that line the surface of your gut, of your lungs, of your skin, and it's time honored tradition. It's extremely effective, and if the vaccine was given orally, you know your body would detoxify it and destroy it before it even got into your body because it doesn't want that inside of it. Uh, but when it goes into the bloodstream directly, the, the heavy metals, um, you know, mercury inhibits methylation severely. It, mm. it, it just slows it down. Um, it doesn't slow down MTHFR per se, but it slows down the next step in the process called methionine synthase. Um, and I was reading that, I'm going to just look this uh reference up as we talk, but, mm-hmm. you know, the mercury in vaccines is so much worse than um, the mercury that's just like in fish. Mm-hmm. Um, um, let me look this up real quick. Yeah, here's my here's my reference. This is from the 2005 study in neuro, um, neuroendocrine letters, and it was basically saying that thimerosal was more than 100-fold more potent than inorganic mercury in inhibiting methylation reactions. So this is what you do to children. Mm-hmm. You inject them with food. You inject mom with garbage and make sure you give her food that's poisonous to her gut bacteria, so mom's gut starts to degenerate. And as mom's pregnant, mom can't produce the vitamins and deliver vitamins to the placental environment at the optimum dose. And so now the baby's born with, uh, you know, we'll say substandard immune system, substandard detoxification. The baby's nutritionally deficient upon birth. Uh, we don't recognize it because we don't, medicine doesn't know what to look for, but that's happening. Mm-hmm. And then and then you give the child uh, a large dose of neurotoxins, um, you know, sometimes once, twice, three times in one visit, and now the body's really becoming overwhelmed. And then what do you do when women, when uh, a baby gets a bad reaction to a vaccine? What medication do they suggest? Does anybody remember or, or know what? Some kind of fever reducer. Exactly. And what's yeah. the most common one that we use? Tylenol, Tylenol, right? Yeah. They don't even know how Tylenol works, by the way. Just keep that in mind. And Tylenol kills, the active ingredient in Tylenol kills 4,000 people a year from acute liver failure. Mm-hmm. It's also the number one method for teenagers to kill themselves is to take Tylenol and drink liquor, and you will not wake up. 
Mm. Um, but what you do with Tylenol, acetaminophen, the active ingredient, depletes your liver of glutathione. And so what they do in, incorrectly and ignorantly is they give the child a giant dose of neurotoxic substances that his body can barely detoxify. Then the body gets a fever by reacting because it's trying to work super hard to get rid of it. And then they give it acetaminophen to deplete the body of its glutathione reserves. And then they've proven that doing that, giving giving uh, giving uh, children a, I'm going to look this reference up for you too, giving children a vaccine and then giving Tylenol uh, increased the odds of getting uh, autism by 500%. So that was University of San Diego oh, um, wow. peer-reviewed published study. So it's terrible, man. It's just yeah. the world's full of bad ideas, and it really yeah. is time we, you know, that's what I'm. That's what I get pissed off about is the world full of bad ideas. So <laughs> that's a bad idea. Yeah, you and me both get pissed off. <laughs> um, do you guys have any questions you want to chime in with? I wanted to get into some basic treatment, but if Anyone else has any any questions they want to jump in with? I, I had a question, yeah. actually. Um, this is Doug here, uh, Dr. Rosenberg. Um, I, I, I guess this I, kind of gets into treatment a little bit, but um, it, I, I was wondering, like, if the, you know, you were mentioning before that it isn't, um, in regards to gut bacteria, it isn't necessarily that it's the wrong bacteria, but that it's too much of the right kind. Um, so I'm wondering if in situations like that, it's actually counterproductive to be supplementing with probiotics. Yeah, that can be, that can absolutely be true. I mean, you know, you know, you know God is in the details, right? And, and who would argue, and it certainly wouldn't be me, that probiotics uh, are, are bad for anyone. But we have to consider that, you know, there's a lot of uh, complexity to life and patients come in with different issues. And when you've, when you've dealt with somebody who, uh, so what, what we do is we would look at the most common drugs in the world, especially in the United States. What's the most common prescribed medication? And it's, it's typically going to be an antidepressant, mm-hmm. a cholesterol medication, or a stomach acid pill, mm-hmm. an acid blocker. And, and so we, we work backwards from that and say those are the biggest problems in our population. We know there's huge methylation issues because of all this depression, and those are, that's also a blood sugar problem, by the way. And then um, the gallbladder is getting destroyed, so we have this cholesterol imbalance. But then we have uh, stomach acid problems. And so, um, you know, your body has many mechanisms to make sure that the environment in your gut is optimum. And you have to remember, like, you know, when it, I used this analogy the other day, so I'll just share it with you, right? So a big, I, I grew up in uh, Arkansas, and it's a beautiful place, you know, kind of like uh, North Carolina where Tiffany's uh, living. You know, the, the hardwood forest is beautiful. Uh, the loam on the forest floor. So when a tree when a tree falls or a tree is dying, you're going to see mushrooms growing all over it. That tree's going to that log falls to the ground. There's going to be just fungus growing all over that um, log to break it down. And the reason the fungus grows is because it's an optimum environment for fungus to thrive. You take that same tree, that same log, and you throw it down in your front yard in Phoenix, Arizona. You're not going to see any fungus growing on that at all, because mm-hmm. The difference is that the environment changes. The fungal spores, fungus, bacteria will grow where the environment promotes it. You're going to have gangs, gangsters, and criminal behavior in society wherever you create an environment to promote that. So in your gut, you change the environment in your gut to create health, and you will not have an overgrowth of bacteria. You'll have the, 
the hardy folk that, you know, do the hard work to keep it healthy. But what, what ends up happening is, kind of long story short, uh, Doug, is um, your gut becomes uh, promoting the growth of bacteria. And what bacteria does, it's going to grow towards food. So you have a 26-foot-long tube with food coming in one end and waste going out the other. The bacteria are going to grow uphill towards your stomach mm-hmm. and because that's where all the nutrients are coming down. And so what ends up happening is you normally don't have much probiotic at all in the upper two-thirds of your small intestine because that's where you absorb a lot of your macronutrition. But your bacteria begins to grow up into that space. Now it eats your food first. And we don't know if it's going to poop out more toxins or more vitamins that you don't need, and it begins to create nutritional imbalances. And it's really the case that people aren't as malnourished from eating wrong, they're malnourished because they don't absorb at all. They, they just That's what we find over and over again. People come in and say, man, my diet's perfect, and I feel like crap. And it's true. They have a great diet, but we just have to uh, change the environment in their gut and help them absorb their food again, and it just changes lives that way. So, mm-hmm. Right. Well, I just have a, a follow-up question to that. Is that, is that. is that what's commonly referred to as SIBO, or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth? And if so, is that um, I know I've, I've come across a lot of different protocols for kind of dealing with SIBO um, just online. I know Chris Kresser talks a lot about that. Um, there's a few other guys as well. Is that is that something that would be recommended? Yeah. So you're you're right on target. I mean, when we see that people are getting sick when they take probiotics, having bad reactions to it, they're eating B vitamins and they're getting like flares of anxiety and heart palpitations and you know, high blood pressure and insomnia and all this pain from taking B vitamins, like how's that happening? Well, it's because there's some infection in their gut. And whether it's a true SIBO or not, you know, the nice thing about the work we do is that, you know, once you you kind of treat it the same no matter what. I mean, if it's a fungal infection, if it's a bacterial infection, if it's uh, a dysbiosis in your gut, the way that the cure is very simple. It, it requires discipline and hard work. But but the the tools to fix it are quite simple, um, regardless of whether you have a diagnosis of SIBO or not. But sometimes SIBO, there are some people who are so sensitive that like they can't take any probiotics at all. But I mean I have people who they tell me you know they they take vitamin D for example and it like makes them sick to their stomach. They're like about to puke. Well that's not vitamin D. That's not a negative reaction to vitamin D. That's something in their gut not allowing them to digest it and doing something really weird with their vitamin. And then 10 days later, you know, they're taking 10,000 IUs of vitamin D and they're feeling fine. Mm-hmm. So hmm. there's a lot to it. There's a there's a lot of good things that come from treating your gut, and that's where most people have to start. So Yeah, that I've read be- that over and over, that you have to start with the healing the gut. That's the foundation of everything. I think that I mean, was- it is. Yeah. yeah. Peter, did you have a, a question? Yeah, um, I've got a couple of probably interrelated questions before we move on to talking about actual treatment. Uh, One of them is, uh, Dr. Rostenberg, we've been talking primarily about the MTHFR polymorphism, but there's actually several others that are involved in methylation issues. You've mentioned a couple already. There's the MAOA and the comp uh, polymorphisms, for example. So I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about some of those. And then related to that, uh, in my understanding, there's sort of four big sub-cycles in the methylation process. 
there's the methionine cycle, the folate cycle, BH4, and then the urea cycle. And I was wondering if we could discuss those a little bit individually too. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, to answer the, the question about these other pathways, I mean, we kind of talked a little bit about how, you know, the methylation cycle moves carbon atoms around. Um, it's, you know, it produces antioxidants, it helps you detoxify, but what it also does, it helps you both produce neurotransmitters and break them down. And, uh, you know, we're looking at the research that's coming out of, like, the schizophrenia, um, you know, research, or trying to understand why people have schizophrenia. And in every case that I've heard of, it's always been a giant stress that's triggered schizophrenia or psychosis. Mm -hmm. And you have to remember that too much of a good thing is a bad thing. I mean, if we, we can die of dehydration, but you can also kill yourself from drinking water. It happens in the Grand Canyon every year. So we have to find that balance between the things we need, not too much, not too little. What happens is, is people with the comp, C-O-N-T, and M-A-O polymorphisms, what ends up happening is, is they have a reduced enzyme speed, which means that they break down their stress neurotransmitters slower. If you break something down slower, you're going to be more likely to have higher amounts of it. Just like the folic acid we talked about earlier, if you're slower to convert folic acid into folate, the odds of you having high uh, folic acid go up. Mm -hmm. Well, the same is true of your adrenaline, dopamine, and norepinephrine. The side effects of excess dopamine, the side effect of excess norepinephrine in your brain is high levels of anxiety, worry. It triggers chronic pain syndromes. It causes uh, insomnia. And in really severe cases, it causes psychosis and schizophrenia. Um, and the reason why that happens is, is that your brain, you know, I'm not, I don't pretend to understand everything about the brain, and the brain's about as vast as the known universe, okay? Mm -hmm. That's what science <laughs> is telling us. But it's, we can think of it like musical tone. So when you have, like, a bunch of instruments in a, in a classical music, quiet, uh, you know, um, concert, and they're all in tune, they're all playing together, you get, you get more than the sum of its parts. You get this incredible you know, spine-tingling sound that just lights up your, you know, comes to this, it peaks, this, the, it kind of crystallizes the energy that's coming out of those instruments. But now as those instruments start playing faster and faster and the horns start blowing faster and faster and they stop getting in tune, you know, now you start to get an opposite reaction where it starts to sound pretty bad and it's really obnoxious and it ter sounds terrible. Well, your brain's kind of the same way. When, you're, when your dopamine is optimum and you have enough of it, but not too much, you get that, that crystallization of brain function. Your brain works really well. It's clear. Your memory's sharp. Your energy's good. You're, uh, you're a quick learner. And then what happens is as your dopamine increases and increases, it actually burns out the frontal lobe. And so you can no longer, your, your frontal lobe can't handle all that, you know, extra activation, extra stimulation, and so it begins to malfunction. And when the frontal lobe malfunctions, the parts of your brain that are deeper and more, uh, more fundamental or more ancient start to creep out. So in neurology, uh, and I'm, I'm, I have a blog post coming out of, in, uh, with this in, in like a week or so, but in, in neurology, we get part of your brain called the limbic system. And limbic is like your, it's like your mammalian brain. Uh, your kind of urges, your sexual urges, your fight-or-flight system, 
And when your when your brain, when the cortex, the frontal lobe, your executive CEO part of your brain, when that's working well, it keeps the lid on these weird urges and these, you know, sort of uh, primordial impulses that you have deep in your brain. But when your frontal lobe gets swamped with all this dopamine and stress hormones and it can't detoxify them fast enough, then you're going to see the frontal lobe stop functioning and then you're going to see the limbic system, all these primordial urges, just start bubbling out. So this is why people get head injuries, like their personality changes, they're super aggressive, inappropriate social behavior, OCD behavior. It's the same story with having Compton NAO problems. Whatever, whatever uh, is causing your frontal lobe to get, you know, dis- become dysfunctional, you'll also see with Compton MAOA, OCD, anxiety, uh, people who are really, you know, are not tolerating stress well. Um, and I'm not saying it's always going to be that way for those people, but I'm saying that's what, that's the gene and the pathway that's really making them not tolerate stress well. And I think that's an important point for our conversation that um, regardless of whether it's a head injury, whether it's, you know, an extremely stressful divorce and you're a kid and your parents are divorcing or you're like a, you know, brilliant PhD scientist, you're doing this heavy work trying to get your dissertation together or, you know, you move out of the country in high school and change high schools and you go to a different country with a different language. I mean, these are really stressful things that happen to people that I personally have heard about people, individuals going into psychosis and kind of a schizophrenic type uh, reaction to that. And that's because of the stress is overwhelming their body's ability to detoxify the stress hormones and it just simply hurts the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, so the methylation cycle is important for that too. Um, that's a whole other conversation. I'd love to give advice, any, you know, answer any questions or uh, comments on that. Um, and just real quick though, before I uh, take that next up, just to talk about the four different cycles. I mean, this is something for your listeners to just kind of research and and read about on their on their own, uh, but the, the methylation cycle does have an impact on your. Uh, they kind of divide it into four cycles. You have um, the methylation cycle that we've talked about. Uh, you have the um, neurotransmitter cycle that involves the production of dopamine and serotonin. This is why when people take B vitamins, they sometimes feel worse. Mm-hmm. It's because they are um, basically producing excuse me, producing more neurotransmitters too quickly. So, you know, you need to back off, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, then you have the, the nitric oxide cycle, the, the urea cycle. And so and this is all, like, complex chemistry. I don't want to, like, overwhelm, you know, uh, everyone too much. And it, it basically means that, you're, you know, as Peter uh, was pointing out, that your methylation cycle has an impact across multiple body systems, every body system, actually, and it's not just about you know, the, the MTHFR system, it's about your neurotransmitters, it's about how you deal with ammonia, how you uh, produce nitric oxide, which is another one of those chemicals that is protective for cardiovascular disease. So endothelial dysfunction, as Peter mentioned earlier, can be a result of not enough nitric oxide. And nitric oxide is produced from arginine, and if, you're, if your methylation cycle is not optimizing, then you cannot produce inside of your body enough nitric oxide and you get, uh, you may see that as circulatory problems, um, cardiovascular risk issues, you have less growth hormone, less energy. So there's, you know, I hope, I'm kind of just touching on some of the the high points. There's a lot to it and even in two hours we're just going to 
scratch the surface. But <clears throat> I, I would like to open up to any questions about the, you know, the uh, neurotransmitters. I think that's a that's just an important one. Okay. Anyone have any questions on neurotransmitters? Nope. Well, okay. Yeah, I, I was wondering if I could. Yeah, if I can just ask a couple of questions regarding that. Uh, so, uh, uh, Dr. Rostenberg, uh, uh, thanks for your uh, going into the previous questions. Uh, I, I have an MAOA uh, polymorphism, so uh, you know I think that is probably directly relevant to some of my own history of uh, having difficulty dealing with stress and stressful situations. Um, I was wondering if you could go into the connection between that and the gut a little bit more. You've talked about that a little bit, but, uh, you know, I think that, you know, there are some important connections in terms of uh, what happens with dopamine, serotonin, and the, uh, the methylation issues on the one hand and the microbiome and the gut flora on the other. Is, is there anything else that you'd like to say about that connection? Uh, that's a great question, Peter. And I think that you know when we you know we can kind of articulate all these problems. We can do a genetic report and see all these things that are just you know imbalanced and out of whack, and it just sort of like you know blows your hair back, and then you kind of get fried thinking, well, what do you do to fix it? Oh my gosh, it's so complicated. And what I want to share with everyone is people have always always been treating their genetic problems. They just didn't know they were okay. Mm -hmm. They didn't know they were. When people change their diet and they start, you know, detoxifying and doing coffee enemas and repairing their gut and doing yeast cleanses and all these things, when you do that, you've been helping your methylation cycle. When you've been improving your diet and taking liver and, you know, taking supplements, you've been improving your methylation cycle. You just didn't know it. So that's what the value of this work is. It's starting to explain why people do what they do and why are some people so much more stressed out. Uh, than others, and why why do some people not tolerate stress? And so, when we think about stress, you know, it can feel like, well, because I have the MAOA gene, or because I have the COMT gene, I mean, I'm always going to be screwed. I'm never going to be able to tolerate stress. I'm, you know, I'm just stuck. And it's not true. Um, the, what happens is, is you have to re recognize where, why does your body release adrenaline in the first place? Mm -hmm. Does it just do it because it wants to? Of course not. It's getting signaled to do this uh, by a very sophisticated, uh, you know, set of conditions. And so we have to recognize that the immune system is what is the producer of, uh, you know, the release of adrenaline um, in most cases. So most of our adrenaline that gets into our body, most of our most of the alarm that goes off in our body is due to chemical messengers released by the immune system. And your immune system is something that we can modulate, we can control it, we can turn the temperature up, we can turn the temperature down by changing what's going on in our gut. Um, so if we can agree that the immune system is the main player in producing inflammation in our body and it's the it's what's releasing the chemicals that cause our body to react to stress, then we have to recognize that the gut is where about 70 to 80% of the immune system lives. Mm -hmm. So by getting the gut under control and functional, you're calming down 70 to 80% of the inflammation. 
probably more than that. But hmm. that puts us so that that's why the gut is so key in people who have Compton Mao issues because if you have an infection, for example, in your gut, and what happens is, is it's not even that the living bacteria bothers your body. In fact, your body doesn't really get irritated to living bacteria. What irritates your body profoundly are dead bodies floating around. Mm-hmm. So it's the dead, it's the dead bacteria. Think about a just not to be gross, but think about us. Think about our realm. I mean, you know, people walking around is one thing, but a bunch of dead bodies in your environment is a toxic waste. It's this decomposing tissue is carrying disease. Mm-hmm. Well, dead dead bacteria in your body do the same thing, and your body's hypersensitive to this. So when you have a gut infection, you get what's called lipopolysaccharides (LPS), and that triggers that can trigger high blood pressure tachycardia, difficulty breathing, panic, insomnia. And the reason it can do all those things is because the the dead bacteria irritate your immune system. Your immune system sends the alarm off into the rest of the body, and then you get the release of the stress hormones. So it's like like four or five steps removed from where the problem is, Mm -hmm. where you get the symptom. Well, thanks for elucidating that and how important the gut is. And that gives me justification for liking to talk about poop so much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, you got to talk about poop, man. Poop's important. And it's important. <laughs> so any so, other questions from, from the peanut gallery? I wanted to um, just get some general treatment protocols. Like if a patient comes into your office, Dr. Rostenberg, and is complaining of XYZ symptom, how did, where do you start? So if I had one question to, to ask, the first thing I would talk about is how's their digestion. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's where I, that's the, the most important part of the conversation. And the reason why is I, I got to find out if someone been, have they been on antibiotics for 20 years for sinus infections, even though they're coming in for insomnia or back pain or like irritable bowel, they may have just gone through 20 years of taking antibiotics twice a year for sinus infections. That's critical information for for me. Mm-hmm. And and so that's where you gotta start. You gotta look at you know, you gotta look at what what their complaint is because the nice thing about the body though, you know, unlike us, the body's perfect. It's it's completely perfect. It's just not invincible, okay? But your body's perfect. And it doesn't do things uh, to spite you because it has a bad attitude, because it needs, atten- you know, needs attention or it's playing passive-aggressive. It's, it's giving you symptoms because it's telling you the truth. Our job is just to use you know, some inspiration, some wisdom to understand what does that symptom really mean. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's how we kind of work backwards from there. That's, that's the game that we play every day. Um, but you know, starting with patients, you just got to see how are you pooping, how are you, how's your digestion, have you been on, what's your exposure to antibiotics, have you been on, you know, uh, how do you sleep? Sleep is huge. I mean, more than any other vitamin, if you want to de-stress yourself, you need to sleep. And what the research shows is that melatonin, which we use in our practice all the time, melatonin inhibits the release of both cortisol and the catecholamines I was telling you about that cause, that come from Compton mouth problems. So people who are just really overwhelmed with stress, sleep and rest is the antidote to stress. Mm-hmm. So 
the chemical of sleep and rest, melatonin, has biochemical impacts in your body that really do calm down your adrenal system and your stress system profoundly. So um, we talk a lot about sleep and digestion and uh, kind of go from there. Okay. That's, yeah. So as far as supplementation, we had a question in our chat room regarding uh, folate versus folic acid and what amounts do you use, what types? Um, I think this question came from Zoya, if I can find the question here. Yeah, like what kind of folate, how much? Sure. So, uh, Zoya, that's a good question. Um, just remember that folic acid is being produced in your body every day in, in small amounts from your gut bacteria. So it's not it's not the poison that it's made out to be, but people with NTHFR need to make sure that they create a they don't have high amounts of folic acid. Like I wouldn't I would never want to take more than like a milligram of folic acid every day. And if if I ever did, which I probably don't see how I would do that at this point. If I ever did, I would want to make sure that I took three to four milligrams of folate as a to keep the ratios appropriate for, for methylation support. So when you're looking for supplements, you want to find supplements that have five methyl tetrahydrofolate uh, for you know when you're supporting your methylation cycle. Um, those are going to be more body ready. You're going to be able to get more. Uh, out of them, um, so that's important to recognize. And in people with severe methylation issues, the highest amount of folate that we use in our clinic is right around three and a half to four, maybe five milligrams a day. Um, I haven't found that higher doses are necessary. Um, some individuals and this is getting a little off topic, but like in an autistic autistic population, they actually have antibodies to folate. And so what happens is, is you can give them all the supplements you want, but the body will not absorb it in the gut. And that and it'll and the, the sum that gets into the gut, the brain won't allow it across the blood brain barrier. And so even though they're taking seven or ten milligrams of folate every day, they're hardly getting any into their brain. And that's a case where someone might want to do an, a trial with folinic acid because folinic acid uses a different uh, carrier and uh, receptor that isn't blocked by the immune system and that they've been seeing really good results with folinic acid in people who aren't responsive to methylfolate. But just to keep it simple, always look for methylfolate in your supplements um, when you're working with NTHFR issues. Mm-hmm. and. Y- I would say everybody out there should limit their exposure to folic acid and always have, if you're going to have some folic acid, because, I mean, it's in some products, and I don't believe that they should be thrown away. I don't have that opinion. Um, You just want to make sure that the ratio of folate to folic acid is 3 to 1 to 4 to 1, that you're always getting more folate than folic acid. And I would also add that folate comes from leafy greens and vegetables mm-hmm. and as I mentioned before people don't absorb very well so we use a lot of stomach acid support in my office we probably go through that's probably the number one product that we use is uh, stomach acid replacement which which product in particular do you use is it um, like bile or HCL or betaine? yeah 
Yeah, we use Betaine HCL with pepsin. Um, so the product we use is called Metagest. It's from Metagenics. It's, it works phenomenally well. Um, I take it every single day, every meal that I, you know, um, and I have patients taking it. And it, it just, you realize that your stomach, see, your stomach requires a massive massive amount of energy to produce the juices to break your food down. I, I rarely meet patients that say, hey, doc, I've got so much energy, I don't know what to do with. Most of the time, we're dealing with low energy. When you're low energy, when you're not sleeping well, when you're, when you're, unhealth, when you're not feeling healthy, well, there's not going to be a situation where you're feeling tired, but your stomach is going to run a marathon for you. Mm-hmm. It's, all going to, it's all going together. So that's, that's a key piece of advice, man. If you want to get your, you got to make sure your stomach acid is adequate and optimized. And we have them, we have a little, uh, on my website, beyond MTHFR, you can look at protocols, have a tab for that. And we've got a, I've tried to share as much as my, as much as I can with what we do in my office with the, the worldwide web. Just, you know, I, my goal with all this work is to have people figure out their health problems as easy as it is to find a plumber in the phone book. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that we shouldn't stop till that's been accomplished. Okay. Doug, did you have a question? Yeah, I just had a quick question. I'm I'm wondering if um as far as like, you know, people listening here and, and kind of getting some ideas and connecting some dots on their own issues, um, if somebody does have any of the kind of symptoms, the multitude of symptoms that, that have kind of been mentioned here, um, is it okay for them to just kind of start experimenting? maybe just start taking some methylfolate or some other methylators, methyl B12, and to see if that improves things? Or is it really necessary to go through the whole genetic testing and um, taking all those kinds of steps? So some doctors might disagree with what I'm going to say, of course, but I I don't think that it's necessary for everyone to, to do the testing. And I mean, I don't, again, I believe we treat people, not tests. And once you understand methylation and you know what you're looking for, you don't need a test. You just look at somebody. You just have them walk into your, you know, when they walk into the office, we can see it because they have different shapes to the way their body is or they have, you know, a history of uh, cancer, heart disease, depression, or they had, you know, uh, preeclampsia when they were pregnant with their children, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not, I wouldn't, I don't like ultimatums like that necessarily, and I wouldn't say if someone's not interested in knowing all the little ins and outs and details, if that's not how your brain works, you don't need to go through the rigmarole of doing all the testing. Um, Mm -hmm. Sometimes more information is not better. I mean, look at our culture. We're saturated with information, and we're more tuned out than we've ever been. It's almost like information overload. So that's that's one answer. And then the other thing, of course, I would, you know, Doctors who treat themselves have have fools for patients too. So you know you take your you, you find somebody in your area, you find somebody who's working on this, and you support them. And what you're doing is you're voting with your dollar to get more people to do it. So that's how you'll change healthcare. It's just I'm not saying it can't be done by yourself. I'm just saying it's frust- it can be frustrating. So well, you, you already mentioned that the gut, a healthy gut, is the foundation of a healthy life. Um, a lot of our listeners and myself and our um, the other hosts on the show, we follow a variation of the ketogenic diet or paleo diet. Um, what's your thoughts on that kind of diet as far as gut health and methylation goes? I think it's the best type of uh, diet for most people. Um, you know, I have 
I have a wonderful staff, and on my staff here, I have a vegetarian, I have a vegan, and then, um, you know, everybody else is kind of the way you've described it. Um, you know, there's certain genes in our, in our let, me, let me point out that there's a gene that produces choline in our body, and this was something that I discovered that I think is kind of interesting, and, it, and basically, choline prevents fatty liver. Mm-hmm. So without choline in your body, you will develop fatty liver, you'll develop a lot of other issues as well. Uh, but choline is critical for the processing of sugar, converting it into fat and getting the fat out of your liver and to store it in your body. So that's choline kind of helps you produce cholesterol and all these other things. Mm-hmm. Uh, our, the Japanese and the Chinese have about almost 90% of their population is born with very quick choline-producing genes. So what this would mean is that they're able to eat rice and vegetables for years and years and years and never develop fatty liver or any of the high triglycerides and, uh, you know, visceral adipose fat that, that us in the West are facing, okay? Mm-hmm. So when people in the West eat that way, they begin to increase their, because in the Western part of the world, we have a lot of slow choline-producing genes, and that, that gene is P, like Peter, E as in egg, M as in um, money and T is in Tom, P-E-N-T. That gene produces choline. It's the only way our body does it. There's mm-hmm. only one way, it's that one gene. And and what's interesting is that we're born with really crappy P-E-N-T genes, and so they're going slower. And so we have a higher need for animal products because animals have a lot of choline in them. Seafood, beef, and eggs are full of choline. So there's your, I mean, it's just fascinating that's why we have different diet requirements. That's why people in Africa, you know, there's tribes that live on, like, animal blood. They eat a lot mm-hmm. of that. And they're actually really healthy. And people on in Indonesia are eating, you know, really high-carbohydrate diets, and they're doing fine. But I think that most most of the people on this show of, uh, you know, uh, sounds like our backgrounds would work really well with uh, the ketogenic diet. And that's anti-cancer. Ketogenic mm-hmm. is anti-cancer. It's, it hasn't... I don't. It's my favorite diet. I don't. I, I can't think of a better all-around diet than to eat a modified paleo, you know, high 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 quality fat, protein, and really low refined carbs is the way to go, no doubt. All right, yeah, keto diet. Doug, did you have a follow-up question? Yeah, no, I, I had a, a follow-up question from my last one. It was just kind of like if if somebody you know, on the opposite end of the spectrum, and, you know, I, I was talking about people who weren't interested in doing all the genetic testing. If somebody was interested in kind of mapping their genome and seeing these kinds of things, how would one go about that? Well, the, uh, the process is pretty simple. Um, you send your saliva. You, you, the, best way to, the best place to do it financially and probably the most amount of information is the 23andMe. Um, you know, Again, I, I personally opted out of research, and I didn't want I, – I, it's a privacy thing. But honestly, you know, if the powers that be want to get your DNA, they don't have to try that hard, they're going to get it. I mean, so you don't – you know, mm-hmm. you can be paranoid about it, or you can just kind of have, have an open mind and say, okay, I'm doing this for my own spiritual and, you know, uh, education to learn about myself and, and health and wellness. And if you approach it that way, it makes sense. Um, so 23andMe is the way to go. It's super inexpensive. It's like 99 bucks, 10 bucks for shipping – you're going to get your entire, they, they break your genes down completely. They tell you who you're related to. They, they give you, like, some really good information on, you know, your, your family history. What you need to ignore is, like, your risk of diseases because they're just, they're not, 
yeah, people with certain genes are at higher risk, but again, don't let what 23andMe tells you influence your mind. You have to learn how to read your own genetic report and make sense out of it. Um, but once you, what you do is you do 23andMe, it takes about a month to get the report back, and what you do is you download your raw data. So you download this huge file of scientific nomenclature and garbly gook. It doesn't make any sense. And then you upload it to another another uh, website. The website that I've uh, worked with, who I, I really admire the effort they've made to raise awareness, is MTHFR support. And you'll find their face group page, and I post on that page. I'm an administrator on their on their website. Um, and you know they've been doing a really good job raising awareness, and they built a report. So long long answer to, to a short question. Do your genetic report, 23andMe. Four weeks later, you get you log in, you download your raw data, you upload it to another website, you pay 30 bucks, and now you have about a a color coded, easy to read report. It's going to be where someone like myself, uh, that's what we ask our patients to give us if they want us to go over their genes. We work off that, and we can map out where their big uh, roadblocks are, and, and it's it's the best report. Mm. Okay. Yeah. 23andMe, if anybody wants to get tested. Um, Dr. Rostenberg, I wanted to give you a chance to, um, a couple times in the show, you mentioned kind of a spiritual side to really uh, working to uh, work on your own health and improve improve your daily functioning. Is there anything more that you wanted to mention in that direction? Well, that's a pretty good question. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we're talking to, a, a you know, a group of people who are passionate about, you know, educating people, the alternative media, and I think that you have to, you have to own your health care, okay? You have to have your own little, uh, you have to be your own bank, you have to be your own army, you have to be your own doctor a lot of times. Um, you really have to... Uh, Take your health into your own hands, and that that's a that's an act of responsibility. And just like you know anybody, I'm a parent, and you know having kids is stressful in the beginning, but then you see the joy and the love that it brings into your life. And so mm-hmm. I I, I kind of think that every time we take responsibility for something, you know, our ego or something, you know, we get afraid of uh, losing ourselves or what I don't, I don't whatever whatever goes on in our mind, we have apprehension about. But I really want to encourage people to take responsibility for your health. I don't believe in victimness. I mm-hmm. think being a victim is like the biggest poison you could ever give somebody. And, you know, if you don't like the way your health is, then you should get pissed off and do something about it. Um, this is a good place to start, mm-hmm. but it's not required. Um, I think the genetic information is uh, an emerging field. It's it's a new field. That's where I get the joy out of it because I like, uh, as I mentioned, I like solving problems. I like I'm self-taught, you know, this is just a drive to understand how things work and it, keep, you know, just keeps me going and we've been able to really see some amazing results with patients. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, it's not the money in your bank account, it's not the car you drive, it's not the $10,000 vacation to Hawaii because you may be more stressed out when you come back from that vacation, right? No, <laughs> no, no good vacation goes unpunished, guys. It's not like you can take a vacation from who you are. You have to really, you know, own, own your health. That's what I want to say. Mm-hmm. And uh, the more people that stand up and take advantage of their health, the better off we are. And there's never been a better time to get information on how to get healthy. Um, 
the takeaways from today are you start with your gut, whether you're a, you want to nerd out on genetics with me and talk to me on the phone and have me help you guide you through your genetic report. I'm happy to do that, but you should check out my website beyond We're going to be upgrading it soon to make it even more user friendly, but that's where I just, I'm giving all my information away for free. I want to educate people and, you know, share my thousands of hours of study into a, you know, 10-minute video and a, and a little blog post, but um, start with your gut and, you know, have gratitude in your life because that's, at the end of the day, you know, you know, you don't just swallow food, you swallow ideas and you swallow um, thoughts. So mm-hmm. be careful what you're swallowing. If it gives you indigestion, you probably shouldn't eat it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm psyched to, uh, you know, be, um, I just want to thank you guys for having me on and I really hope this was brought some value to your your audience and you know it's a it's an exciting time to be looking at this uh, type of healthcare. well thank you so much for being on it was very enlightening i feel much smarter just from having talked to you <laughs> um, yeah and i think uh, peter wants to ask one more question yeah and uh doctor uh, yeah thank you tiffany uh dr rustenberg how are you doing on time do you need to go soon or do you have time for one or two more questions I got a few more questions. We'll, uh, I'll uh, say I got to be out of here in about uh, 15 minutes. How's that go? Okay. Okay. All right. Great. So here's a, maybe it would make sense for me just to list a few topics I uh, would like to ask about, and then uh, maybe you can just comment on them according to how much time you've got on your end. Uh, so the things that I've got in mind. Uh, One is we've been doing some uh, research on uh, chronic infection recently, and so I'm interested in asking uh, if you have any comments on the relationship between uh, methylation blockages and chronic infection. And then uh, I was also wanting to ask just briefly if you could say anything about uh, heavy metal toxicity and pyroluria. Sure. I'll start with the infection part. And, you know, we have a large percentage of our patients seek us out because they're dealing with something like Lyme disease or some other problem. Um, and And oftentimes, you know, people want a label because label gives them... Uh, there's comfort in knowing, well, at least I have a name to call it. It's like going into the doctor and saying, I have a headache, and he looks at you and says, and says, tells you something in Latin. He says, you have a migraine. You go, oh, I have a migraine. And just the, just getting the, the label um, kind of helps your, you know, helps your, our little monkey brain, like, calm down a little bit. So what I'm, the reason I'm saying this is, yes, uh, chronic infections are a big part of people's uh, life in our society. When, when our body becomes stressed out, the body has a pre-programmed set of responses. So it goes into chronic survival mode. It pushes blood away from our gut to try and uh, get blood into the muscles and activate energy so that we could run for our life or fight for our life. That's, that's hardwired into who we are. The chronic infections come around because our body's under chronic stress and when we have methylation issues, we don't have this, the flexibility that other people have. I mean, that's really what having an MTHFR problem means. It means that your body, when under stress, is less flexible, less quick to put resources into a certain area 
And so you allow the infection to, uh, you know, will will be able to grow while your body's trying to get the resources over there to fight it. Um, virus infections are a big problem as well uh, because, you know, you remember viruses put their DNA into our DNA, and if we cannot put the methyl group on top of the viral DNA, then the virus is more likely to, uh, you know, continue to proliferate in our body. So especially with viruses, and that would also relate back to cancer, cancer and viruses share that in common. It's sort of the DNA that we have that we would like to silence that we're unable to silence very well. Um, I mentioned Lyme disease, and I'm not trying to make, you know, I'm not trying to put anyone down for, you know, looking for that answer. It's just that, you know, many times I meet patients, I, I, I've actually never met a patient who said, you know, I had Lyme disease and I took the antibiotics that they they give me for Lyme disease and I felt better. It's always I was I was treated for Lyme's and it destroyed my gut. They gave me IV antibiotics, tons of antibiotics for six months, and it's like, you know, oh my gosh, um, you know, maybe we need to just get you healthier and, and optimize your your methylation cycle and get your gut working, and then your own immune system will kill Lyme disease and it will. Um, mm-hmm. So. So that's the point I'm trying to make. When you're healthy, I mean, we built pyramids. We, you know, mapped the stars. We sailed around the world. People live 110, 115 years. Um, you know, we have potential inside of us to do anything. And when, when, you, when you optimize your methylation cycle, you optimize your genes and you optimize your life. And your immune system can kill anything. Mm-hmm. It can kill anything. Um, but the chronic infection piece is... A big part of when I see chronically ill people, there's chronic infections, as I mentioned. It's usually only the gut, but there are those individuals who have more of the, you know, deeper, uh, deeper infections in their body. And as I mentioned in the beginning too, that you, you know, we take vitamin C, zinc, and selenium for our immune system when we have the cold. Well, it's also helpful optimizing your methylation cycle and improving your glutathione. Not only helps your immune system fight all your infections, it also is what's required to combined with uh, heavy metals. So I want to mention that, you know, heavy metals, uh, we're all exposed to them. Um, and one problem with heavy metals is they act like estrogen. So when when lead, arsenic, tin, cadmium, aluminum, and mercury are in your body, they will actually bind in your genetic, in, your, in the nucleus of your cell in the same location as estrogen. So, it, you know, we have, we see like a population-wide feminization of our whole species, if mm-hmm. I can, you know, that's that's just an observational fact. Um, and then you see women with really bad estrogen-related problems. There's a lot of estrogen-related cancers. And a lot of that has to do with heavy metals. So I'm pointing this out to your listeners to start to think about people who have estrogen-related problems, low testosterone, high estrogen, heavy bleeding, fibroids, endometriosis, that kind of thing. They also need to do heavy metal detoxification. Mm-hmm. Now, now optimizing your methylation cycle allows you to do that. Um, you make a, your body makes a protein called metallothionine, and that is a binding, that's a metal binding enzyme that kind of uh, escorts the metal out of the cell. Um, glutathione does the same thing; it binds with the metal and it is escorted out of the cell to the liver, where it is pushed into the bile. So when you look at your body and you think of the ways that you get rid of heavy metals, the bile is by far and away the main way. But what do we have problems with in our culture? We have bad stomachs. Mm -hmm. 
we have bad gallbladders. And when, so it's all going back to digestion again. When your gut, when your stomach doesn't produce acid, the food that leaves your stomach is not acidic. If the food that leaves your stomach is not acidic, the gallbladder never gets the chemical and neurological signal to squeeze. So it never releases its bile very much. So without releasing bile, you do not remove the heavy metal from your body. So what will happen to heavy metals is it gets in your bile and it goes into your gut and then it gets sucked back into your body and recirculates. Because 95% of your bile that's released during a meal is reabsorbed. That way your body doesn't have to waste energy making it over and over again from scratch. Mm-hmm. Um, everything happens for a re- reason. Your body is smarter. Your body's perfect and smarter than we are. Um, so what we do for heavy metal detox, uh, Peter, and it's a good question. We use uh, products that increase metallothionine, so it'll increase the excretion of mercury about 900% over placebo. So it's really good at getting rid of mercury. Um, I don't do chelation in my office. It's just not something I've embarked on yet. Um, I kind of like to do all the okay. fundamental stuff first. I take a, take it a little slower with people. Um, but one one thing we do help with heavy metals, and for your audience, if one thing to help with heavy metals is to take a really high-quality charcoal. And the kind we use in our office is from bamboo. It's a bamboo charcoal. And as that bile gets released and the charcoal in your gut comes into contact with the metals that are in the bile, it will bind that metal and not allow it to be reabsorbed into your gut. Mm-hmm. So essentially, that's how you draw metals out of your body. You keep keep your bile, keep your digestion working, and as the bile is released, you try to bind the metal in your gut to poop it out, and that that does remove the metals from your body. So that's a charcoal product that you use. Yeah, I don't know uh, if patients, they can probably look it up online and find it. I don't have like a store for them to go to right off the bat, but it's called Takasumi, and it's from um, Japan. It's like the cleanest, purest bamboo charcoal stuff. Uh, it's really cool stuff. So, um, yeah, that's, that's. Uh, so let me just make sure. So that's that's heavy metals and then chronic infections. I mean... Yeah, we we test people. When I can see someone in in person, um, we do a lot of work over the phone. We have a lot of people do a lot of uh, tests. People send me 60 pages worth of lab tests, urine, stool, organic acid tests. Um, The organic acid test is a really good way to look for chronic infections um, because they look in the urine for metabolites of bacteria and fungus. And so we can work backwards and say, if this stuff is spilling into the urine, if you've got high arabinose in your urine, you've got high uh, benzoic acid in your urine, you've got bacteria in your gut and in your body that's polluting the tissues of your body and interfering with the brain's breakdown of neurotransmitters. So there's, I mean, we, you know, it's like, it's the more we zoom in, the more we can talk about, but, um, Oxalate problems are another issue we have. So you mentioned pyroluria, and pyroluria is really a sort of chronic deficiency of B6 and zinc. Um, what happens is, is the bile, I'm going back to gut again, as your bile stops being released, what happens is the uh-huh. fat in your diet, the olive oil in your salad, the coconut oil from your sautéed vegetables, etc., do not get absorbed. No bile in your gut means no fat being absorbed. Mm-hmm. Not very much anyway. And normally, if your fat's absorbed, then that allows the calcium that you ate in your diet to get absorbed further down in your gut. 
and the calcium in your diet will bind with oxalates. And, you know, this may be a new term for a lot of people, um, but, but oxalates are produced inside your body, and they also come from food, especially healthy food like blueberries and spinach and kale. There's a lot of oxalates in those foods. Some people are juicing that stuff every day, all day long. Mm-hmm. Um, so the moral of the story is that your gallbladder shuts down and stops working because you have methylation issues and you've got hormone imbalance. Now you start eating food uh, that you're not going to absorb. And so the, the fat in your diet binds with the calcium in your diet and you poop both of that out. So now you poop out your fat and you poop out your calcium. And what do women often develop, and even men, with we often develop gallbladder problems and osteoporosis. Mm-hmm. And now because the calcium is being pooped out with the fat, you'll see uh, the low vitamin D because they can't absorb vitamin D if they can't absorb fat, vitamin A, vitamin E, vitamin K. And then you'll also see uh, that the oxalate levels in the body start going up and then you'll end up with kidney stones in a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And the kidney stone is a side effect of the gut not absorbing fats uh, because normally your calcium should bind with the oxalate and get pooped out. So, I mean, I'm throwing a ton at everybody, and this is, again, thousands of hours of research. I mean, you know, years of work to get all this, all these pearls. But the pyroluria, in my mind, is really just a, a lab finding of somebody who's B6 and zinc deficient. It's not really an inherited uh, problem with their metabolism. Um, these people who develop oxalate problems are going to be very rapidly depleted of B6, and so you can see that could itself lead to um, a pyroluria type problem. So I guess in order of importance in my office, you know, how's your gut working? How are you sleeping? Then we look at oxalate problems and say, you know, people who, who have oxalate issues, you have to treat that first. You have to get the gut functioning better before you can start dumping in methylation support mm-hmm. because you can't throw fertilizer on top of weeds, you have to start, you have to clean the garden up, remove the weeds, till the soil, resod it, get the plants where you want them and the kind that you want, the healthy kind, and take care of them. Then you can throw fertilizer on. But you got to do that step first. Okay. Great. Um, I know you have to leave in a few minutes, so I wanted to thank you again for coming on the show. And if people wanted to find out more about you and your practice, I know you run the Red Mountain Clinic in Boise. Um, can you mention your website again? Absolutely. So if you go to, you know, I have two websites. One is my practice, just kind of gives you information about my physical office here. That's redmountainclinic.com. But the one that's kind of my, uh, you know, my, my uh, you know, work of love, sweat, and tears is the, the beyondmthfr.com. And, of course, that title tells you what it's about. It's not just about the MTHFR gene polymorphism. Morphism. It's about... Uh, how your genes influence your health and how to optimize your genes. And so that project is really, for those who want to do research, that's the place to investigate because uh, there's, you know, hours of videos there, you know, thousands and thousands of words of of research that I've shared and continue to share. So that's the place to uh, learn more and you can, there's contact info on either site. So Mm -hmm. I'd love to, love to talk to anybody in the audience who would like help, uh, you know, navigating their health and well-being. We work with people all over the country and all over the world via phone or Skype and uh, have people traveling to see us as well. So so they can find information about uh, arranging for a phone consultation at your Red Mountain Clinic website? Yes, ma'am. That is the, that's the best place to do that. Okay. Well, um, 
you have time for one more quick question, or is it? I, I can do one more, sure. Okay, go ahead. Time, then I got to roll. Quickly, Peter. Okay. All right. Uh, I just wanted to end on what I hope might be kind of a fun and interesting question. We, we've talked about the what and we've talked about the how, but we haven't really addressed the why. And I've wondered, why did these uh, polymorphisms happen in the first place? Uh, where did they come from? So yeah, Zoya mentioned an article last week uh, where there is a group uh, that uh, in Europe that has some polymorphisms that have to do with energy conservation, which is great when you don't have enough to eat, but when you do, it makes problems for you in terms of obesity. So could these have a, some sort of adaptive function, or do you have any idea why these things might exist in the first place? Well, you, you know, there's a phrase in uh, investing that says when the when the tide goes out, you'll find out who's not you know, who's naked, you know, when the tide goes out. And I believe that we look at that from a health point of view and we say when the environment is full of nutrients and full of uh, things that nourish us like glacial meltwater and pure spring water and artesian wells and organic food, this is how our ancestors lived every day of their life. Uh, it didn't matter. It didn't matter that your methylation cycle was going slower because you're eating methylation dense food every meal every day all day long it didn't matter um, it's just that it's reflecting back to us what our toxic sick world is doing has done to our bodies um, so you know you, you start depleting the food supply and creating all these chemicals that require more vitamins to remove from our body so before we had petrochemical industries we didn't, we didn't get exposed to all the chemicals that we are exposed to. Those chemicals, every time you inhale a molecule of stain remover or, you know, put something under your arm that's, you know, toxic carcinogen, your body has to spend nutrition out of its account and it's forever lost to try to get rid of that chemical. So we, we deplete our body of nutrition by the toxic situation that we're in. So I, I actually don't think there was any reason to the the polymorphism except that it didn't pro it didn't actually create a problem uh, when we were thoroughly nourished and eating all of the uh, foods that our ancestors were were developed on and you know it may just be the case of mother nature creating abundance she creates lots of different versions of the same thing just to see who's gonna you know uh, just to to, to uh, hedge her bets against uh, survival in different circumstances and obviously people with the methylation problems are not the best to survive the world we've created, so we need to really do a job, <laughs> do some work cleaning it up. Mm -hmm. And it's and it starts right. with our own self. So that's, I guess that's my, that's the way I would answer that question, is I just think it's it didn't matter, Peter. It was The world was so rich with nutrition um, in most cases that it didn't, it didn't matter. It didn't, it wasn't selected against as we had children over and over and over again, so. Okay. All right. Great. Thank you, Dr. Rosenberg, for taking that last question. Okay. No problem. Thank you again for having me. Well, thank yeah, you for being yeah. on the show again, Dr. Rosenberg. Um, your website is beyondmthfr.com. Uh, people can also find you at the Red Mountain Clinic in Boise, and that's redmountainclinic.com. So thanks for being on the Health and Wellness Show. We really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me, and uh, I uh, 
hope you guys have a great weekend, and we'll talk soon. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you, Dr. Rosenberg. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Okay, guys, that was very, very enlightening and interesting. Um, We do have Mm -hmm. the uh, pet health segment that we want to air for you, Zoya's pet health segment. It's on strange behavior and your pets. Hello, and welcome to the pet health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. Today, instead of sharing information on a specific topic with you, I'm going to allow someone else to do it. The other day, I stumbled uh, on a very interesting video about mental illness or disturbance in animals. It is a recording of TED Talk. TED stands for Technology Entertainment Design, and it is a global set of conferences that run under the slogan, uh, Ideas Worth Spreading. The speaker of the short lecture is Laurel Brightman, who is a science historian, holds a PhD in History and Anthropology of Science from MIT, and is the author of Animal Madness, a book that takes a close look at our non-human friends and their mental anxieties. In the recording, she delves into the history of mental illness in animals, revealing a world of parrots that pluck themselves, cats with PTSD, donkeys with deep neurosis, compulsive bears, uh, self-destructive rats, or monkeys with unlikely friends. And she asks what we as humans can learn from watching animals cope with depression, sadness, and other all-too-human problems. Well, enjoy. TED Talks are recorded live at the TED Conference and Partner Events. This episode features science historian and writer Laurel Breitman. This talk contains powerful visuals. Download the video at TED.com. Here's Laurel Breitman. Oliver was uh, an extremely dashing, handsome, charming, and largely unstable male that I completely lost my heart to. Uh, he was a Bernese mountain dog and my ex-husband and I adopted him and about six months in we realized that he was a mess he had such paralyzing separation anxiety that we couldn't leave him alone once he jumped out of our third floor apartment he ate fabric he ate things uh, recyclables he hunted flies that didn't exist he suffered from hallucinations he was diagnosed with a canine compulsive disorder and that's really just the tip of the iceberg but like with humans um, sometimes it's six months in before you realize that the person that you love has some issues (laughs) And most of us do not take the person we're dating uh, back to the bar where we met them or give them back to the friend that introduced us or sign them back up on Match.com. We love them anyway, and we stick to it. And that is what I did um, with my dog. And I was a... I'd studied biology, 
I have a PhD in history of science from MIT. And had you asked me 10 years ago if a dog I loved, or just dogs generally, had emotions, I would have said yes, but I'm not sure that I would have told you that they can also wind up with an anxiety disorder, a Prozac prescription, and a therapist. <laughs> um, but then I fell in love. <laughs> and I realized that they can. And actually trying to help my own dog overcome his panic and his anxiety, it just, it, it changed my life. It cracked open my world. And uh, I spent the last seven years actually looking into this topic of mental illness and other animals. Can they be mentally ill like people? And if so, what does it mean about us? And um, what I discovered is that I, I do believe they can suffer from mental illness. And actually um, looking and trying to identify mental illness in them often helps us be better friends to them and also can help us better understand ourselves. So let's talk about diagnosis uh, for a minute. Many of us think that we can't know what another animal is thinking. And that is true. But any of you in relationships, at least this is my case, just because you ask someone that you're with or your parent or your child how they feel doesn't mean that they can tell you. Uh, they may not have words to explain what it is they're feeling, and they may not know. It's actually a pretty recent phenomenon that we feel that we have to talk to someone to understand their emotional distress. Before the early 20th century, physicians often diagnosed emotional distress in their patients just by observation. It also turns out that thinking about mental illness in other animals isn't actually that much of a stretch. Most mental disorders in the United States are fear and anxiety disorders. And when you think about it, fear and anxiety are actually really extremely helpful animal emotions. Um, usually we feel fear and anxiety in situations that are dangerous, and once we feel them, we then are motivated to move away from whatever is dangerous. The problem is when we begin to feel fear and anxiety in situations that don't call for it. Um, mood disorders, too, may actually just be the unfortunate downside of being a feeling animal. Um, and obsessive-compulsive disorders also um, are often manifestations of a really healthy animal thing, which is keeping yourself clean and groomed. Um, this tips into the territory of mental illness when you do things like compulsively overwash your hands or paws, or you develop a ritual that's so extreme that you can't sit down to a bowl of food unless you engage um, in that ritual. So for humans, we have the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual which is basically an atlas of the currently agreed-upon mental disorders. In other animals, we have YouTube. <laughs> um, this is just one search I did for OCD dog, but I encourage all of you um, to <laughs> look at OCD cat. Um, you will be shocked by what you see. Uh, I'm going to show you just a couple examples. This is an example of shadow chasing, I know. And it's funny, and in some ways it's cute. Um, the issue, though, is that dogs can develop compulsions like this that they then engage in all day. So they won't go for a walk. They won't hang out with their friends. They won't eat. Um, they'll develop fixations, like chasing their tails compulsively. Here's an example of a cat named Gizmo. He looks like he's on a stakeout. Um, <laughs> But he does this for many, many, many hours a day. He just sits there and he will paw and paw and paw at the screen. 
This is another example of what's considered a stereotypic behavior. This is a sun bear at the Oakland Zoo named Ting Ting. And if you just sort of happen upon the scene, you might think that Ting Ting is just playing with a stick, but Ting Ting does this all day. And if you pay close attention, and if I showed you guys the full you know, half hour of this clip, you'd see that he does the exact same thing in the exact same order, and he spins the stick in the exact same way every time. Other super common behaviors that you may see in particularly captive animals are pacing stereotypies or swaying stereotypies. And actually, humans do this too. And in us, you know, we'll, we'll sway, we'll move from side to side. Many of us do this. And sometimes, you know, it's an effort to soothe ourselves. And I think in other animals, that is often the case too. But it's not just stereotypic behaviors that other animals engage in. This is Gigi. She's a gorilla that lives at the Franklin Park Zoo in Boston. She actually has a Harvard psychiatrist, and she's been treated for a mood disorder, among other things. Many animals uh, develop mood disorders. Lots of creatures, this horse is just one example, develop self-destructive behaviors. They'll gnaw on things or do other things that then may also sue them, even if they're self-destructive, which could be considered similar to the ways that some humans cut themselves. And plucking. Turns out if you have fur or feathers or skin, you can pluck yourself compulsively. And uh, some parrots actually have been studied to better understand trichotillomania or compulsive plucking in humans, something that affects 20 million Americans right now. Lab rats pluck themselves too. In them, it's called barbering. Canine veterans of conflicts of Iraq and Afghanistan are coming back with what's considered canine PTSD, and they're having a hard time re-entering civilian life when they come back from deployments. They can be too scared to approach men with beards or to hop into cars. I want to be careful and be clear, though. I do not think that canine PTSD is the same as human PTSD. But I also do not think that my PTSD is like your PTSD or that my anxiety or that my sadness is like yours. We are all different. We also all have very different susceptibilities. So two dogs um, raised in the same household, one um, exposed to the very same things. One may develop, uh, say, a debilitating fear of motorcycles or a phobia of the beep of the microwave, and another one is going to be just fine. So one thing that people ask me pretty frequently is, is this just an instance of humans driving other animals crazy? Or is animal mental illness just a result of mistreatment or abuse? And it turns out we're actually so much more complicated than that. So one great thing that has happened to me is that recently I published a book on this. And every day now that I open my email or when I go to a reading or even when I go to a cocktail party, people tell me their stories of the animals that they have met. And recently I did a reading in California and a woman raised her hand after the talk and she said, Dr. Braven, I think my cat has uh, PTSD. And I said, well, why? T tell me a little bit about it. So paying as her cat, she was a rescue. And she used to live with an elderly man. And one day, the man uh, was vacuuming, and he suffered a heart attack, and he died. A week later, Ping was discovered in the apartment alongside the body of her owner, and the vacuum had been running the entire time. For many months, up to, I think, two years after that incident, um, she was so scared. She couldn't be in the house when anyone was cleaning. She was very, quite literally, a scaredy cat. She would hide in the closet. She was unselfconfident and shaky. But with the loving support of her family, a lot of time, and their patience, now, three years later, she's actually a happy, confident cat. 
Another story of trauma and recovery that I came across was actually a few years ago. I was in Thailand to do some research. I met a monkey named Boon Lua. When Boon Lua was a baby, he was attacked by a pack of dogs, and they ripped off both of his legs and one arm. And Boon Lua dragged himself to a monastery where the monks took him in. They called in a veterinarian who treated his wounds. Eventually, Boon Lua wound up at an elephant facility, and the keepers really decided to take him under their wing, and they figured out what he liked, which turned out was mint mentos and (laughs) rhinoceros beetles and eggs. Um, But they worried, because he was social, that he was lonely, and they didn't want to put him in with another monkey because they thought with just one arm he wouldn't be able to defend himself or even play, and so they gave him a rabbit. And Bonua was immediately a different monkey. He was extremely happy to be with this rabbit. They groomed each other. They became close friends. And then the rabbit had bunnies. And Bonua was even happier than he was before. And it had, in a way, given him a reason to wake up in the morning. And in fact, it gave him such a reason to wake up that he decided not to sleep. Um, he became extremely protective of these uh, bunnies. And he stopped sleeping. And he would sort of nod off while trying to take care of them. In fact, he was so protective and so affectionate with these babies that the sanctuary eventually had to take them um, away from him because he was so protective, he was worried that their mother might hurt them. So after they were taken away, the sanctuary staff worried that he would fall into a depression, and so to avoid that, they gave him another rabbit friend. (laughs) My official opinion is that he does not look depressed. Um, So... One thing that I would really like people to feel is that uh, you really should feel empowered um, to make some assumptions about the creatures that you know well. So when it comes, you know, to your dog or your cat or maybe your one-armed monkey that you happen to know, if you think that they are traumatized or depressed, you're probably right. Um, This is extremely anthropomorphic, or the assignation of human characteristics onto non-human animals or things. I don't think, though, that that's a problem. I don't think that we cannot anthropomorphize. It's not as if you can take your human brain out of your head and put it in a jar and then use it to think about another animal thinking. We will always be one animal wondering about the emotional experience of another animal. So then the choice becomes, how do you anthropomorphize well or do you anthropomorphize poorly? And anthropomorphizing poorly is all too common. Um, (laughs) It may include dressing your corgis up and throwing them a wedding or getting too close to exotic wildlife because you believe that you have a spiritual connection. There's all manner of things. Anthropomorphizing well, however, I believe is based on accepting our animal similarities with other species and using them to make assumptions that are informed about other animals' minds and experiences. And there's actually an entire industry that is in some ways based on anthropomorphizing well, and that is the psychopharmaceutical industry. One in five Americans is currently taking a psychopharmaceutical drug, from the antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications to the antipsychotics. It turns out that we owe this entire psychopharmaceutical arsenal to other animals. These drugs were tested in non-human animals first, and not just for toxicity, but for behavioral effects. Um, The very popular antipsychotic Thorazine first relaxed rats before it relaxed people. Uh, The anti-anxiety medication Librium was given to cats selected for their meanness in the 1950s um, and made them into peaceable felines. And even antidepressants were first tested in rabbits. 
Today, however, we are not just giving these drugs to other animals as test subjects, but we're giving them these drugs as patients, both in ethical and much less ethical ways. SeaWorld gives mother orcas uh, anti-anxiety medications when their calves are taken away. Um, many zoo gorillas have been given antipsychotics and anti-anxiety medications, but dogs like my own Oliver uh, are given antidepressants and some anti-anxiety medications to keep them from jumping out of buildings or jumping into traffic. Uh, just recently, actually, a study came out in Science that showed that even crawdads responded to anti-anxiety medication. It made them braver, less skittish, and more likely to explore their environment. <laughs> It's hard to know how many animals are on these drugs, but I can tell you that the animal pharmaceutical industry is immense and growing. From $7 billion in 2011 to a projected $9.25 billion by the year 2015. Some animals are on these drugs indefinitely. Others, like one bonobo who lives in Milwaukee at the zoo there, was on them until he started to save his Paxil prescription and then distribute it among the other bonobos. (laughs) More than psychopharmaceuticals, though. Um, There are many, many, many other therapeutic interventions that help other creatures. And here is a place where I think, actually, that veterinary medicine can teach something to human medicine, which is if you take your dog, who is, say, compulsively chasing his tail, um, into the veterinary behaviorist, their first action isn't to reach for the prescription pad. It's to ask you about your dog's life. They want to know how often your dog gets outside. They want to know how much exercise your dog is getting. They want to know how much social time with other dogs and other humans. They want to talk to you about what sorts of therapies, largely behavior therapies, you've tried with that animal. Those are the things that often tend to help the most, especially when combined with psychopharmaceuticals. The thing, though, I believe that helps the most, particularly with social animals, is time with other social animals. In many ways, I feel like I became a service animal to my own dog. (laughs) And I have seen parrots do it for people, and people do it for parrots, and dogs do it for elephants, and elephants do it for other elephants. I I don't know about you. I get a lot of Internet forwards of unlikely animal friendships. I also think (laughs) it's a a huge part of Facebook, the monkey that adopts the cats, or the uh, Great Dane who adopted the orphaned fawn, or the cow that makes friends with the pig. And, you know, had you asked me eight, nine years ago about these, I would have told you that they were hopelessly sentimental and, you know, maybe too anthropomorphic in the wrong way and maybe even staged. And what I can tell you now is that there is actually something to this. Um, This is legit. In fact, some interesting studies have pointed to oxytocin levels, which are a kind of bonding hormone that we release when we're having sex or nursing or around someone that we care for extremely. Oxytocin levels raising in both humans and dogs who care about each other or who enjoy each other's company. And beyond that, other studies showed that oxytocin raised even in other pairs of animals. So say in goats and dogs who were friends and played with each other, their levels spiked afterwards. I have a friend, 
who really showed me that mental health is, in fact, a two-way street. His uh, name is Lonnie Hodge, and he's a veteran of Vietnam. Uh, when he returned, he started working with survivors of genocide and a lot of people who'd gone through war trauma. And he had PTSD and also a fear of heights because in Vietnam he had been rappelling backwards out of helicopters over the skids. And he was given a service dog named Gander, a Labradoodle, to help him with PTSD and his fear of heights. This is them actually on the first day that they met, which is amazing. And since then, they've spent a lot of time together visiting with other veterans, suffering from similar issues. But what's so interesting to me about Lonnie and Gander's relationship is about a few months in, Gander actually developed a fear of heights, <laughs> probably because he was watching Lonnie so closely. What's pretty great about this, though, is that he's still a fantastic service dog because now when they're both at a great height, Lonnie is so concerned with Gander's well-being that he forgets to be scared of the heights himself. Since I've spent so much time, you know, with these stories, digging into archives, I literally spent years doing this research, and it's changed me. Um, I no longer look at animals at the species level. I look at them as individuals, and I think about them as creatures with their own individual weather systems, guiding their behavior and informing how they respond to the world. And I really believe that this has made me a more curious and a more empathetic person, uh, both to the animals that share my bed and occasionally wind up on my plate, but also to the people that I know um, who are suffering from anxiety and from phobias and all manner of other things. And I really do believe that even though you can't know exactly what's going on the mind, in the mind of a pig or your pug or your partner, that that shouldn't stop you from empathizing with them. The best thing that we could do for our loved ones is perhaps to anthropomorphize them. <laughs> Charles Darwin's father once told him that everybody could lose their mind at some point. Thankfully, we can often find them again, but only with each other's help. Thank you. That was Laurel Breitman, recorded at TED Salon New York in New York, New York, July 2014. For more information on TED, visit TED.com. Thanks for sharing that, Zoya. That was very interesting. I never even thought about dogs with cats having PTSD. But there you go. So we've come to the end of our show I want to thank Dr. Andrew Rostenberg again for being a guest and sharing so much about MTHFR and methylation. Uh, his website, again, is beyondmthfr.com. Uh, you can find the website for its clinic at redmountainclinic.com. And on that site, you can find information on how to do a phone consult if you would like. Um, I want to thank our guest co-hosts, Tom and Peter, thanks for being on the show and sharing your your experiences with MTHFR. Thanks yeah, for well, chatting. Thanks for helping. <laughs> oh, thanks, sure. Dave. Anytime, if you want to be a guest co-host, just let us know. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, thanks to our chatters. We'll be back next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. 
Um, be sure to check out the Truth Perspective Saturday at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and behind the headlines on Sundays at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So, everybody have a great weekend, and that's our show for today. All right. Goodbye, everyone. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye.